Time Machine is still finishing, but I thought this would give us uh, an informal opportunity to. Well, you uh, let it finish. You gotta, you gotta nip that stuff in the bud. You turn it off. Mm-hmm. Turn off Time Machine. You turn it. Turn, <laughs> you, man, you manually turn off Time Machine when you I record. I sure do. <laughs> okay. There's a, there's a giant switch. It's like the biggest control Ooh. in the entire operating system. All right, off. let's go look. Okay, but this, how do you need to turn it back, back on? Back. How do you remember? Go. How do I remember? How do you I don't remember? Know. I just, I just remember. So I hit, I, I unclick backup automatically, or say stop this backup. Uh, yeah, you probably have different look because I'm in such an old operating system. But in my thing, if you go to the time machine preference pane, there's a big logo of the clock, and it says time machine, and below that is a gigantic on-off switch with oh. a slider thing that goes from on to off. <laughs> it's finishing backup, finishing backup. Okay, but you brought up an interesting mini topic. What um, are the things that you do to your environment before you record a podcast? I get a glass of water mm-hmm. uh, to my right on a coaster. I turn is it off, on a different level from your keyboard. It sure is. Mm-hmm. I turn off uh, Dropbox. I quit Dropbox and wow. I turn off Time Machine and I quit all the applications except for the ones I think are going to be using, plus like web browsers and stuff. Like Dude. if I have any big fancy application, I will quit that. Like if Photoshop was open, for instance, I would quit it. Turn off Dropbox, huh? Because somebody else might be adding something. That's right. Mm-hmm. Lots of stupid shared folders that okay. count towards my uh, disk usage, which makes no sense. I don't like it. I selectively, uh, every week, I go in and selectively unsync mm-hmm. the stuff that my pack rat co-hosts like to keep. Yep. Huh. I turn off my back of a truck program. I turn off, I make sure Time Machine, if I hear the, the disk running, I know it's Time Machine. And I go and I say, stop this back up. I do tend to cut off. Most of my apps that are running are pretty minimal. I got Chrome, TextMate, NVAlt, Skype. Um, I've, I've I've thought about do, using that thing Jason Snell uses. It's kind of a like a pretty blunt instrument, but what's, I always forget what it's called. But the, it's designed to be, as you know, I'm sure you know what this app is. Do you remember what it's called? Uh, no, you were talking about the thing that's supposed to be used for like location awareness. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, Location Man. Was it Location Manager? Yeah, Location Manager from that back was, in the old days. That was a great uh, system yep. prof. Um, yeah, and this app, basically the idea is, you know, if I'm traveling in New Zealand, don't automatically download a bunch of stuff. You know, don't, you know, turn off YouTube unless I turn it on, whatever. But anyway, the idea is you go in and shut off all the stuff that you don't want running. And I've got it and played with it, but I don't know. I, I think Dropbox usually is not a big deal, but abundance of caution, you know? No, I, I've seen too much weird crap with the DBFS events D process uh, that is associated with Dropbox doing stuff to my disk that I just quit it. You know, I'll tell you the truth. I used to be better about this. I actually have a folder in my um, folder on my desktop and in my little favorites that's uh, called Post Skype because I used to turn off everything. What did I used to turn off? Dropbox, Google Photos, uh, Plex. Back of a truck, back of a truck, iTunes. And that way I could go in and just select. I have them um, tagged. And mm-hmm. I could just select all of these and then hit them to open back up. You know what? Good habit. I'm going to do that right now. Why do you need to open them back up, though? you got to demand page that stuff. You what does that, that mean? Is that, a, is that a P-list type situation or a, is uh, that a ling-in? I got to do a ling-in for that? Demand page virtual memory is the oh, idea where uh, you you launch an application rather than reading all of the pieces of that application off of disk into memory and then executing it. You read none of that application off of disk and you just say, great, I'm running your application. And the first instruction goes to run and it's like, oh, wait, uh, that 
block of memory is still on disk. I don't, memory know map, that whole of, file. I don't know what any of that means. Oh, is that a command well, line I, thing? I got to simplify it. All right. Um, demand <laughs> page bunnies, means and bunnies. Uh, do not, uh, do not uh, prepare or launch a thing until right before you need it. So rather than after you're done uh, podcasting, relaunching all the applications that you had quit because mm-hmm. you wanted to podcast, don't relaunch any of them. Instead, wait until you need iTunes and then launch iTunes. No, but m- mostly you- it's dropped. The three, the three that I, I'm sorry. I, it's just that there are things that I always quit. I used to always quit compulsively, and I wanted them all here. The main three are Dropbox, Google Photos Backup, and Plex Media Server. And those, I will, I will quit my Dropbox, and I will probably forget. I just, I just shut off Adventure Time on my daughter. I can't believe she hasn't texted me yet. She gets so mad <laughs> when I do that. Why did why did you turn off Adventure Time? Oh, because you quit the Plex. Yeah, well, that's that. Servers are like that. The, the that's like thing, your NAS. Yes, why your I re- how I remember these things. One thing that I think helps is uh, Time Machine and Dropbox are both in my menu bar, mm. and Time Machine stays there when you turn it off. It's just grayed out, so it's kind of conspicuous that there's like a dimmed icon in my menu bar. And I guess Dropbox is just the absence of the little Dropbox icon. So there is a visual reminder and indication that. Uh, you know, hey, remember that you disabled Time Machine and remember the Dropbox isn't running. But Hmm. All right. I tried. I'm going to turn off the Dropbox again. I'm going to be a good boy. I'll shut off the Google Photos. Um, you know, you know, um, this, uh, hmm. Okay, I'm quitting. I'm quitting. Okay, I quit Google Photos. Um, quit hmm. that train. Can you, can you hear it? I sure can. <laughs> <laughs> I says to myself, I says, it's an ideal office. It's very near where I live. It's very close. It's totally affordable by in San Francisco terms. I can do this. It's got a bathroom. So when, a, when you inevitably uh, choke on a pretzel and die in your office, uh, foul play will be ruled out based on the the audible train going in the background. <laughs> First, we're going to have to get past these kombucha bottles. <laughs> right. Rejoice. Rejoice to living beverage, March. Um, let's see. Hmm. Did you, um, I haven't looked again. Oh, we got to talk about your chair. Yeah, I definitely don't want to do my work chair and I want to hear you complain about face ID and then we'll pick a topic. I love it. John, I feel like, I feel like you're vexed. I was trying to explain this to my family. You don't move John Syracuse's chair. You don't take it away and you definitely don't without his, without even talking to him, give him a new chair with unadjustable armrests. Who does that to John Syracuse? John, what is the situation with your work chair, and why is this such a battle for you? I don't think this is about me. Mm. Now, let, let me tell it's you services. why. Services. This is a system services people. No, I think this is a, a, a... We should have broad consensus on this. All right, so if you work an office job, like I do, and have done for many years, uh, and if your job mostly involves typing on a computer, uh, you are like... I was trying to just phrase this question, like, what is the most important thing about your working environment, if that's your job? And I guess you could say, like, the building should be climate controlled, so it's not freezing cold or boiling hot. Well, it it should be secure and not have leaks. Right. But beyond that, once you start getting into office equipment, I feel like your chair is one of the most important things to your working environment. Now, standing desks, yes, we actually have standing desks. Some people stand, some people sit, they go up and down, you can adjust them. Um, So I guess maybe your desk is important, too, but... Your chair feels like the most personal piece of equipment for doing your job. And just practically speaking, most people spend a huge amount of time in their working life sitting in whatever chair 
is their work chair. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the desk can be personal, too, and you might, you know... I would say keyboard. It's basically just a horizontal surface, and hopefully it's adjustable. And I would say see, other key, keyboard too. would be a big one for me. But for you, especially for somebody with RSI, I imagine that having the right chair is a really huge deal. Right, because, uh, I mean, the whole setup is important, but the chair is like, look, your body is in that chair. Um, and if the chair doesn't agree with you in some way, there's really not much you can do to get around it other than get a different chair. Keyboards, like keyboard and mouse, I have requirements there, but uh, I've always just been able to buy a keyboard tray and either expense it or just out-of-pocket it and like attach that keyboard tray to my desk, as as I've done over many years. Um, at one point, uh, my keyboard tray got lost in one of the many moves in my offices, so I just bought another one and expensed it. They're not that expensive, and if I had to pay for it myself, I would do it. I install it myself, and it's fine, right? And the desk has changed many times over. A couple of times I've had to lobby to get a straight desk instead of an L-shaped desk because it doesn't fit my keyboard tray nicely. But, you know, anyway. Mm-hmm. But the chair, I feel like, if you were to survey all the people in my office, all of whom are sitting in chairs in front of computers or standing at desks in front of computers and typing all day long, chair's really important, right? Mm-hmm. And And it's not even just like... Oh, I have a back problem, or oh, I get like blood clots in my legs, so I need you know I have to stand or I have to have a special chair. Or just plain, I am a perfectly normal, healthy person who nevertheless spends multiple hours at a time sitting in a chair. And so it seems to me that if your job is to be like a facilities person or whoever's in charge of like dealing with the environment of an office, that. Perhaps the most aggressive and most objectionable thing you could do is take someone's chair away without talking to them and give them a different chair and tell them they can't have their old chair back. Because, like, I mean, they, they do all these these surveys at work, like, you know, how do you feel, every, you know, like, how's everything going at work? How do you feel about the... You know, your coworkers and your boss and your managers. And they also ask, how do you feel about the people who run the office? Like, are you constantly too hot or too cold? Is it too noisy? Are they, you know, do you have everything you need to do your job? Is your computer working? How do you feel like about the IT support people, right? But how, how can those surveys exist in a world where the people who run the office think it's perfectly fine to take away your chair with zero notice? And when you say, hey, uh, I don't like the new chair. Can I get my old chair back? They say, no. You can't have the old chair back. Like, aggressively, no. Boo. That's, that's like, fu- fundamentally failing to do the job, right? Mm-hmm. Now, everyone has their reasons. They may have their reasons. And I'm saying, if you're good at your job, you have to somehow find an accommodation. Maybe they could say, look, your old chair is never coming back, but I want to break that to you nicely. Let's work together to find you a chair that you like. Maybe you don't like the chair that we gave you. Let's work together to find a chair that just, you Just to get, like, the, get the right? framing on this right. I mean, as with all of those kinds of surveys... I always wonder, like, A, is that hooked up to anything? And B, mm-hmm. are they actually gleaning something that you don't expect about how you respond? You know, I'm always worried if I'm being, like, tricked somehow. Like, are they, they think I'm a belly acre or something like that? But what you're, if I understand what you're saying, if they're throwing the shape of being interested in your job satisfaction and how it affects your ability to be productive, why wouldn't they look for, like, a big 80-20? Is there something here that means a lot to this person that doesn't cost me any extra like, couldn't yeah, I at or, least take or, care of that? Or to, to think that this effort to mass replace a bunch of people's chairs without asking them and without allowing them any recourse and say, you will now take this new chair, mm-hmm. right? No notice, no nothing. Like, And surely most people will be like, okay, well, whatever. I don't care that much about my chair. But the few people who do complain, work with them. It's not rocket science. Just be like, okay, uh, have some plausible explanation of why they can't have their old chair back, even if it's a BS reason. Have one. 
right? And then mm-hmm. say, let's work together to find a chair that you like. Do you like this one? Do you like that one? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? It's not so hard. I'm not Mm-mm. saying they have to be like white glove you're not, services. You're not asking for anything exceptional, difficult, costly, or disruptive. Right. And it's really – it's only going to be five or six annoyed people and the rest of the people are just going to like grin and bear it or don't care that much about their chair You're or the opposite of the usual bellyacher. The usual bellyacher is like you know, like my friend Dave but my old job who uh, had to have seven lamps in his office. Usually it's somebody who's asking for something costly and disruptive. They want some kind of special accommodation. You're saying, no, no, no. Just let me keep the old chair. Yeah, no. That, I mean, and that's uh, uh, among the small number of people who were super annoyed by this were people who had had their chair – for a long time. I, I've had this chair for like eight years, right? And a part of their pitch was all oh, those chairs have, have passed their useful lifetime. Like, <laughs> I, they never came around to do it. They should have said it's a safety issue. It's not. My chair was fine. Every part of it worked perfectly well. Nothing squeaked, squeaked <laughs> nothing a, stuck. Is it a fire hazard, John? <laughs> yeah, like, is it going to spontaneously combust? It wasn't leaking any liquids. It wasn't even ugly. It wasn't even ugly. It was like no stains, no rips, no tears. Like, it's an office chair. I just sit in it. It doesn't undergo a lot of wear and tear. It was perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with this chair, right? Mm-hmm. No mold was growing in it. No mice are living inside it. No bugs like, are in it. for example, the seat wasn't all split open with the foam coming out in a kind of no. eruption. No, mm-hmm. no, it was it was perfectly good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, you can't have that chair. I can't. A lot of people say, okay, well, uh, you know, I took this chair. Uh, I, you know, there was lots of different kinds of chairs in the office, and there was lots of horse trading with chairs back when you know there was more diversity in chairs in the office to get just the chair that you wanted adjusted just the way that you wanted, and to have that chair for many many years and to have someone take it away and say, no, you can't have it back, to the point where. People were looking for their chairs. Like, they must be around here somewhere. Like, it was here yesterday, and now it's gone today. Uh, I found my chair in an elevator. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we haven't really exactly explored. Like, this has come up at least a couple times in Slack. I feel like it's come up in ATP. Could you give give an anecdote of a recent time that you've had to deal with this? Oh, yeah. This is all a very recent thing. So I came in one day, and my chair was gone, and a new chair was in its place. And so I said, my old chair's got to be around here somewhere. This also happened when I went on sabbatical, by the way. I went on sabbatical from work, and I they, came didn't back. did they do a big move while you were gone? Yes. And my and my chair was gone, and I had to go find it. Turns out it was in a conference room, and I found it, right? This time, my chair is gone. I'm like, let me find where my chair is again. So I go looking. I uh, can't find it. We the, the people who are annoyed by the chairs being gone start sharing information uh, over Slack about where the chairs <laughs> the chair might be. Slack. <laughs> yeah. Someone said they saw a bunch of chairs in an elevator. So I went into the elevator, you know, down the hall from my office and lo and behold, shoved into an elevator where a whole bunch of chairs, including mine. So I an operational my... elevator? Yeah. Like, just, like, 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 a, like a people, like a non-service elevator, like they're, mm-hmm. they're storing. This place <laughs> sounds like a very confused operation. Well, they had to move a lot of chairs. And you know that overnight, like, where are you going to make all these chairs disappear to? I thought they yeah. might have been like in a storage building or in a conference. They got to put them somewhere. It's not like they're going to chuck them into a dumpster immediately. Like, I, maybe they're probably going to resell them as unit furniture. So anyway, I pulled my chair out of the elevator and put it back. Uh, and then... I, you know, I knew they were going to try to take the chair back. So I thought about like, I should, I should like lock it to my desk or something. But I'm like, look, if they want the chair, they're going to get the chair. So let me just <laughs> make it clear that I want this chair. Please don't take it away. So I put a sign on it that said, please don't take this chair. Whoa, Next day I come back in, the chair is gone. <laughs> Again. Somebody has a hard on for your chair, man. Yep. So they got rid of it. And then, you know, I, I complained through all the official channels. I said, can I please have my chair back? I like my chair. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, there is no reason for you to take this chair away. The reason they gave is the chairs have exceeded their useful lifetime, which, again, is a BS reason because, you know, tell me what's what wrong with my chair. Thing, what an odd thing to say. 
Right. And and the the other thing was and we're we're replacing all the chairs with this one new kind of chair. Like so it was a uniformity thing, like all chair like the Borg, all chairs must mm-hmm. be this new kind of chair. Yeah. Um and the resistance, new kind of chair is futile. Yeah. The new kind of chair I didn't like because it has arms on it, uh, which I initially thought were not removable, but it turns out they are. But in general, it's just not as comfortable for my back and for sitting in. Like the, the seat is not as comfortable, the back support is not as good, the back doesn't go up as high. Um, I just didn't like it, right? And I'm like, why, you know, why take away my old chair, which I liked, without asking me about it, and give me a chair that I like less? And why not let me have my old chair back? And so that was a bunch of people uh, have that same problem. One person did manage to, you know, get their old chair back and hide it from them. So maybe they're done with this floor and they're not going to take it back. I got to check back to see if he managed to keep his chair. But I think they think they're done with our floor. And now we'll move on because, you know, he, he got his replacement chair from a different floor where they haven't invaded yet. And, you know, Borg like replaced all the old chairs with the new ones. Right. Right. But it just seems like that's why I think it's not just a me thing. Like, even if you don't care that much about your chair, it's kind of annoying to come in one day and your chair is gone. It's replaced with a new one. Now, maybe you like the new chair better because it's shiny and new. Right. And maybe you find the new chair more comfortable than the old one. But it seems just like quite an imposition to take away you know what i think is the most personal piece of office equipment because your butt is sitting in it and replace it with a different one without without any consultation without any warning and also without any uh effort to accommodate if people have issues because the answer is just like brick wall nope sorry you're getting the new chair no choice because you you um how do you put this they think about this differently than you do it's i mean when you do any kind of operational stuff you tend to think at a certain kind of scale. You think in like big gestures. I mean, it's it's strange to me as a user that the response to that would be, well, this is the new kind of Borg chair that everyone's going to have. But I, I guess, I mean, so do they see you as being like a counter-revolutionary? Like, are you a troublemaker? Yeah, I, I am a troublemaker. And I so I went to a different floor to find, uh, well, first I, first I made a request, can I have a chair without arms? I said, I sent a request through official channels. Eventually, he was told that I can't have my old chair back. So I sent another request that says, can I have a chair without arms? Let's just start there. Because mm-hmm. the arms, I know I don't like the arms. Uh, and I eventually discovered the arms are removable. And I saw how they were removable. So the next day, I brought in tools to remove them myself. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that ticket went through the system. And someone came and said, oh, I'm here to remove the arms in your chair. I said, great. Person fumbled with my chair for a while and couldn't figure out that it was a Torx uh, screw instead of something else. So I gave him my Torx wrench and I said, "Here, please use to re- use this to remove the arms." He used my tool to remove the arms, uh, and then rather than taking the arms with him, he just put them aside. So now I have the chair without arms. Great, fine. Um, but then I found out that the person down the hall had managed to get one of the old chairs and hide it from them. And he got it from a different floor. So I went to the different floor. <laughs> it's like an underground railroad or an Anne Frank kind of thing. Yeah. I went to the different floor and I found one of the old chairs in a conference room and I swapped it for, for one of the new ones. And I brought the old chair down to my floor and I'm rolling the old chair towards my desk. And as I'm rolling towards my desk with the old chair, the guy who removed the arms had come back to retrieve them. And he saw me rolling in the old chair. He said, oh, you can't have that chair. You're kidding. And he, and he took it from me. What is what is happening? He said, you can't have that chair. That's the old chair. You can't have that one. <laughs> Why does he care? And he that's his it, job. That's and his, he, he, he just exactly. makes the train said, you have time. problems, complain to my boss. Which I had already, you know, obviously this, gone through this, official channels or whatever. Well, you so don't have to fall my, back, but it, it does feel like something just, to, maybe not Kafka, but like maybe a little bit like out of Brazil. Yeah. I mean, like I don't, I don't understand the incentive structure that makes this the right thing to do because the incentive structure seems to be aligned to be like part of the facility's job is to make sure that the employees have what they need to do their jobs and make sure that they're if not happy, then at least satisfied, 
yeah. their needs are being met. And like the worst thing you can do for customer satisfaction is to take away everyone's chair and give them no choice to have the old one back and just like like no attempt at accommodation. Of, like I would willing to try a different kind of chair, but I'm saying just have the arms off this one. I suppose you could say that's an attempt at accommodation, but honestly, I could have just done that myself because I had the tool to do it. I was about to do it. They just beat me to it, right? Mm. Um, but I also asked in the in, in that ticket to say, can I? You know, if you have a different kind of chair, can I try that one or whatever? But they were they pretended they didn't even see that part. They said, I heard you wanted your arms off the chair. I was like, well, I actually asked if there are any other chair options as well. But whatever. They don't care. Like, fine. Arms off the chair. I can, of course, buy my own chair and bring it to the office. But people have stories about how they bought their own expensive, fancy office chair, brought it to the office, and then facilities went and tried to take it away. No, you have to have, you have, to have a different kind of chair. Right. And it's like, that's not even your chair work. I bought that with my own money and brought it in. They're probably going to say you can't bring it outside. Contraband. <laughs> It's contraband exactly. chair. No, no outside chairs. No outside chairs allowed. Let me search your backpack. <sighs> so, so I stupid. find the whole situation incredible. Like it's, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter that much. P- some people at work who have legit like slip disc kind of you know bone related back problems are in much worse situation than I am because I merely find it uncomfortable, which is kind of just annoying after a long day, right? But some people have real back problems, and they had a chair they had found that supported them, and they got that taken away and can't get it back. So I feel worse for them. I, but it just seems so incredibly misguided and so mishandled that it just boggles my mind. That it's it's like an own goal. It's like everything was fine, and then you had to come in and you know have this new chair regime, and you're just pissing off people. How do your coworkers feel about it? So most of them don't care because either they are newish employees who had one of these new kind of chairs from day one, so they never do anything different, or they're just like, oh, new different chair, which hopefully is newer than their other one, and they're just like, well, you know, like most of the time people don't care that much about office chairs, but. I feel like the longer you've had your old chair uh, and the more uncomfortable you find the new one, the more it just seems annoying. And maybe like maybe if you are I, I say the, the younger people are just willing to say, well, I guess this is just what work is like. This type of thing happens. But I feel like I'm too old to accept that kind of crap. It's like there's no there's no reason to do this other than maybe someone has some kind of aesthetic they're going for. They want all the chairs to look the same. And the old chairs were considered ugly because they weren't like purple and red, like the new ones are, but they were just gray. Right. It seems um, from my point of view, and I I don't have the kind of job where I have to think like the person who makes these decisions, but from my point of view, that feels arbitrary, even more arbitrary than, let me ask you this. Have you ever done like I asked, have you ever done any kind of like, you know, the guy who has to go take games off people's computers and stuff like that. Have you ever had that kind have, of job? No, I haven't. I'm familiar with that, but I have not done that specific thing. Customer support, but never done the thing where you take games off people's computers. You know what I mean, though? Like the yep, kind of the admin person who has to make sure all the Windows stuff is up to date, run the virus. I mean, I haven't been in a place that does stuff like this in years, but there, there's a certain kind of arbitrariness to that that makes more sense to me. I, it's, it's still arbitrary in a lot of cases, but I told you like my dot-com job, uh, I had to make a really hard case to even be allowed to have a Mac like in the office. And yeah, it was definitely it was not allowed to be on the, the whole network. Right. We don't even know. We, you certainly can't print. And I really would prefer you just not be on the network at mm-hmm. all because, you know, this is before Wi-Fi. But, I mean, that's arbitrary. But in some ways, that's an arbitrariness that makes some sense because maybe they've got some benchmarks about performance. You know, who knows how they're being evaluated. Or, or just an unknown. Like they can't support that and they don't want to have a thing that they can't support because it's their problem if you can't do your job because the thing exactly. that they can't support exactly. broke. Exactly right. And, and so, and you know, who knows what kind of vulnerability that could introduce. I mean, even if that, now that's, now that is arbitrary, but that's an abundance of caution that while silly still makes more sense. I mean, I don't think you have to go full-on Joel Spolsky 
to at least have some sympathy for the idea that when you're an information, like a knowledge worker or an information janitor of some kind or another, like you have, you already have a kind of weirdly tenuous relationship with your job and your company because of maybe not for you, but for a lot of people, it's kind of a strange and can be a weirdly anonymous thing. And so you make, you make rules say like, okay, these are the kinds of things you can do in your cube. You could put up this kind of thing, but not that kind of thing. You can't have your sexy anime characters, but you can put up one star Wars thing or whatever. There's that kind of stuff. I guess there's stuff like how the development environment is configured. You make it into stuff like, again, like with you, what kind of keyboard and mouse. It's just think when stuff like this comes up, it seems like, you know, it's, it's not, it, it, if anybody with any, it seems to me, anybody with any sense could see what you're asking for and say that you're, you're not trying to be difficult. You're not asking for anything special. And it feels like a failure of a company that's as intelligent and, and big and smart as yours to like let this kind of thing go by without being addressed at least a little bit to say like, even, even like, even if you got to talk with the head lady or dude who said, look, I'm sorry. I mean, like this is a mandate and I can't do anything about it, but it sounds like it's, it really is just purely arbitrary and a little bit a little bit of a turf war, an unnecessary turf war. I mean, I'm sure it is a mandate. Like, I'm sure there are incentives that say uh, by week X, all old chairs are removed and replaced with new chairs because it's part of some program that we're doing for office renovation. Like, they, they change the office all the time. They change it from, like, mini cubes to open seating. And they, you know, they've made many, many changes that I, I haven't liked. Like, I, you know, I would prefer an office, but nobody has that except for the important people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would prefer a cube over open. Uh, but eventually they got rid of the cubes. I would prefer not to move every six months, but I've moved around a lot. Like some things you just accept, like it's, you know, whatever. It's it's a growing company. You're moving people around. No, I don't like open seating. I'd rather have cubes. But what can you do? There's not much you can do there, right? Like I, I kind of understand why they're doing that to pack more people in. Like it makes some kind of sense, even though I don't like those changes. But uh, th- there is some incentive aligned, like to do this move by this amount of time and to, you know, make all the chairs uniform. And they're executing on that. But that's where I get the, like, engagement survey things to say, like, how do you feel like facilities is, you know, is facilities, you know, doing everything it needs to do to make sure you can do your job and make sure you're happy? And it's always like a one to five scale, like five, like strongly agree, you know, facilities, facilities partners with me to make sure I have what I need to do my job. Right. That's how it's always (laughs) phrased. right? They liaise with you. (laughs) Yeah. Partners usually says one to five, five strongly agree and one strongly disagree. I'm going to one strongly disagree until I no longer I'm at this job for facilities. Like there is no coming back from this because I'm going to put my little thing. And it's going to be one forever because this is like I can't think of anything that they could have done that would have been worse than this. Even if they had maybe if they had said uh, no more Macs of the company, everyone has to use a PC. Mm-hmm. Like I would feel like there'd become some kind of technical reason or financial reason for that. Like that there, that there was some kind of company wide decision to do that, like to standardize on that, it. Yeah, I mean, and with those, those kinds of large dumb decisions, that could be something the way I understand it is like, well, you know, this is the way that we buy this technology. Maybe we get a discount, you know, for this yeah. kind of stuff. Like there's a reason we have to do this. And maybe part of the, I, I would not be surprised if in some of those kinds of deals, there was even a codicil about how you're not allowed to have more than this percent of not this platform. Yeah. Like, you know, like if there's this one like vertical market thing where you have to have this particular Linux box, like that's okay. But anybody who's in development has, we have to be able to say that this many seats are using this enterprise software package. That's part of why we sell it. And because we're a technology company, maybe they partner with Microsoft or partner with yeah. Dell or in some bigger deal. Like it would, you know, I would dislike it very strongly, just like the move to open seating or whatever. But it's like, well, I understand the motivations for it. And, you know, and it would be up to me to decide, is this important enough for you to go find another job? Or are you just going to grin and bear it? Right. Um, but the seat stuff, 
like we're, we're a technology company. We're not a furniture company. There's no partnership deal <laughs> that we should have with some office seating company to say, look, give us a discount on our furniture. But the, the condition is you can't have any outside chairs. They all have to be this kind of chairs. Like if they made that deal, that's a dumb deal. That's a bad deal. And if they did make that deal, they should be upfront about it and say, look, we know it's bad to have to remove all the old chairs with the new ones, but we made a deal to get a discount on these chairs, and it requires that we can't have any outside chairs, which I think is implausible, but at least it would be an explanation. But the, the key part of this is why they're not partnering with me to, you know, to meet my needs. It's like, yeah. is that they didn't, they didn't work with me. They, they weren't upfront and honest about it. They, they gave no warning. They didn't acknowledge the fact that this is kind of a, a terrible thing to do. And they didn't attempt any accommodation proactively, even knowing that I was upset. No one came to me and said, how can we make this right? No, it's it's yeah. just straightforward customer service. Like it's so it would have been so easy to handle me. I was 100% handleable. I wasn't like irate or yelling or whatever. It'd just be like, you know, get, tell me the reason, make up something if you don't have one, but make it vaguely plausible and then say, what can we do to make sure that you uh that you are once again satisfied with your chair? I know you want your old one back, but we can't give it to you for insert stupid reason that uh you know, it would be nice if they just told us the truth or whatever. We can't give you the old one back. Uh, let's work with you to get a chair. But they didn't do that. They were willing to just right. let me sit there and stew. I had to go after them and say, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you? It's just bad customer service. You're, uh, just... you're, you're, you're Milton. Yeah, it's this... like the, sta- the stapler thing. <laughs> the stapler. You know, exactly. At this point, your only recourse is to set the building on fire. <laughs> no, I'm not going to set the building on fire. I'm just going to sit there. I'm just going to click one on that survey forever. Right. They said after 11, you could play your radio quietly. Yeah, I mean, maybe the, the only thing that would stop me from... <laughs> Maybe the only thing that would stop me from clicking one in that survey forever mm-hmm. is like a change in management of facilities and an acknowledgement that this is like the worst thing facilities has ever done. Maybe you should go start moving their stuff around, see if they like it. Not just replace their chairs. I mean, they're, maybe they're not in their chairs all the time. Like, you I, change, I don't even, you change I don't even their know shell what, or mess with their profile or something. I don't even know what the equivalent could be. Like, because, you know, again, with the computers, because you would they're, think they're replacing. They're, they're gorillas, John. You know they're a bunch of apes. No, they're not. They're just right. They're just people doing a job. I just don't understand why. Uh, like, see, why their incentives? It's Nuremberg all over again. Yeah, they're go. just following orders, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if the if the uh, if the incentives. I mean, this is what you said about that survey. Like, you always wonder if it's connected to anything. Now I'm wondering too. Like, yeah. what the, d- does that survey have any effect other than to make us feel better? Because it seems like none of their incentives are aligned with caring what any of the employees think about the office environment. Right. Although yeah. on other times I've done things like we had a door that was make this terrible screeching noise every time it closed, like kind of a metal on metal screeching really oh, loud. No, you Not hate like a that. You hate that. Everybody. Like it was loud enough that you could hear it like down the wing. You don't like noises of, though. You're not, you're not a fan of noises. I mean, if you just imagine that kind of metal screeching, right? So I'm like, I mean, honestly, I could live with it. I'm pretty tolerant of noises, which is how I'm able to live in this thing. But I figured... Maybe they don't know this thing is broken, so I'll put in a ticket to say there is a squeaky door. Like you should whatever. get a, you should get a bounty for stuff like that, you know. And eventually they came and fixed it, so it shows there it must be some incentive structure to be like uh, you know or oiled it or whatever. So it must be some incentive structure to say like if someone puts in a ticket and something is broken or noisy or like this room the air conditioning doesn't work in this room and it gets too hot or whatever. Eventually someone comes and makes it right. So it seems like there is some kind of incentive structure to uh, deal with uh, issues in the office and fix them. But like I said, it's an own goal to go with someone to go to someone's desk and take away their perfectly good working chair that they love and make them use another one. Why? To what end? What do you get out of that? I don't understand it. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com. And please enter the offer code DIFFS at checkout and that'll get you 10% off your first 
purchase. Friends, make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea. With a unique domain, award-winning templates, and so much more, maybe you want to create an online store, a portfolio, or a blog. Well, got it all locked and loaded with Squarespace because it is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades are ever needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got you covered. They even have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you ever need any help. And now uh, they also let you quickly and easy go grab a unique domain name. Just go to squarespace.com and get a domain name. Remember, all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I've been Squares- with Squarespace for years, and I am such a huge fan. I use them to host a podcast. I have two of my own personal websites on Squarespace. I think they are just the best Squarespace plans start at just $12 per month, but you can start your trial right now with no credit card by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, please use the very special offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, and that's going to get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Um, I realize this reflects an innate brokenness in me. I will acknowledge this, but I, I really I get to be in my bonnet. The it's one thing for people to not care. Oh, so I'll just say the easy way: not care about you, not care about your interests, not care about your preferences, not care about your opinions, not care about your environment. Environment. It's one thing for them to say straight up: look, we don't care, and your what you care about. In this instance, does not have any impact on what we do as a business. That's really, really bad. I think something that is worse than that is somebody acting like they care when they really, really don't. There's something that's really um, dispiriting about that kind of attitude. Like again, when it's when it's not attached to anything, and now you're you're wasting your time. But I feel like you can work with that attitude though. Like if they're if they're willing to pretend, then you have some leverage on them, and that they want to maintain that illusion. So you can work that illusion to say you have to pretend like you are. That's customer service, right? I don't think that they really care about whether I'm slightly more uncomfortable in my chair. But if they if they feel like they have to pretend that they do, then they will come to me and say. What can we do to deal with this chair situation? But they didn't even feel like they had to come to me. They didn't. Mm-hmm. They're just like we don't have to do anything. They're monsters. So what do you do now? What's the what's the situation? Eternal vigilance. So the situation now is I have my chair without arms, which does make a big difference, um, and it is less comfortable than my old chair. I'm trying to mess with like the back adjustment thing to try to get it to you know some. You know, they they also make claims that the chairs are more adjustable than the old ones, which is not true. They're differently adjustable, but they're not more adjustable. Yeah. For instance, for example, the back part of the chair cannot go up and down. Uh, the only thing you can adjust on it is where the little like lumbar support thing uh, is. But the actual doing, that does nothing for me. No, no, some, no, no. I mean, it does something, but the actual yeah. chair back doesn't go up and down. And because I'm a tall person and it's, it's a little short on me, you um, should get but, a doctor's note. Have you thought about that? I mean, I can do all that stuff. Like, I don't legitimately have like a back problem. Here, here's what it is. Now, when I sit at my desk. I'm slightly less comfortable than I used to be. Not mm. like super painfully comfortable. Parts of my body aren't going numb. I'm not an agonizing man like some people are, by the way. Some people do have problems and they need accommodations. But I'm slightly less comfortable. And you'd say, okay, whatever. You're slightly less comfortable. Who cares? Suck it up. Just do it. If you're in this chair for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week for years and years, slightly less comfortable all day, especially when you have an exact comparison. I used to be slightly more comfortable and now I'm slightly less. My choice is I can go out and buy myself a chair. 
and maybe try to expense it um, and then hope they don't steal that chair or I can just suffer with this slightly less comfortable chair. So hmm. right now I'm in the mode where I'm just trying to make this new chair work. If I can, you know, put pillows behind my back or adjust it as best I can and try different things and maybe, you know, spend more time standing at my standing desk instead of sitting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can't get that to work, I'll buy myself a chair. And if they won't expense it, I'll just eat it out of pocket. I bought plenty of things for my desk out of pocket just to mm-hmm. make my environment nicer. And I don't really have much of a problem with that because I view it as look, uh, it's more work to try to work the system to try to get reimbursed for this thing that I want. This oh, little absolutely. Mat, mat that it's I like stand splitting on a check at lunch. It's just like life's too short. Yeah, just I'll just buy it myself. Um, you know, the the cost of this, you know, fifty dollar floor mat will it'll more more than pay for itself as I spend again forty hours a week in front of this desk. It'll be fine. I don't really have a problem with that. It just it just sticks in my craws. They say that mm-hmm. they came they, that they made my a life worse for like no reason. And don't seem to care about it. Yeah. Might be steaming. You got a floor mat you like? My, mine feels, I got one for my, uh, I got a f- carpeted floor in here. Uh, I, mine's okay, but I've always thought it was flimsy compared to ones I've had before. And now it's getting divots. There must be a very regular pattern to my casters because uh, I get divots and I go, <laughs> and I scoot, I'm doing it right now. I'm scooting because I'm in, I'm, in I'm in a rut. Yeah, so there's two different kinds. One is the old 80s thing where, uh, so you can have a, a chair with casters on your carpet and you don't sink into it, right? Mm-hmm. And the other kind is like the kind that you do put in front of your sink in the kitchen so you can wash dishes. Mm-hmm. So you don't get like fatigue, right? I like a more rubbery one. I've, I've got the old-fashioned clear plastic one with the nubbins, the pointy nubbins on the bottom. Right, so I think uh, what I'm talking about is the thing for like a standing desk so your feet don't hurt, like a little bit of a squishy thing. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm looking at. The ones for your chair rolly, I don't like those because I, I like the chair is too rolly then and I slip around too much. Mm. I kind of like the feeling of casters on carpet. That's what I have both at work uh, and at home when I have my chair there. I'm more looking for like when you're standing at a standing desk. There's also standing desk ones that look like uh, craters on the moon to give mm. your feet like different angles to go at. Ooh. Right. Different interesting angles to try to, you know keep the blood flowing down there or whatever. There's some theory behind I should do that. I should do that. At, at, uh, at work, I sit. Well, at my work, whatever. When I'm here recording podcasts, I'm sitting at this desk I stole from my cafeteria in 1989. Um, this, uh, this table. And I'm sitting in this disgusting chair that I've had for I don't know how many years. Now, when I'm at home, we rec- well, not recently, probably two years ago, my, my daughter stopped playing with her Ikea kitchen, the classic Ikea kitchen, with the little sizzly uh, burners on it. You know, in the fake microwave, it's a classic toy. That is my standing desk at home. I stand at that and I stare out the window, and it's really nice. I just like, I've never like a gotten... cat. You just stand there and look out the window, <laughs> longingly, got, just staring got, into she, nothing. That little precious angel got groomed. She got groomed, and she's so cute. She's so cute. I gotta find you a photo. Seems unlikely. Well, okay, come on. I saw her when she had a, a more fur, and come I like that better. So I feel like more oh, fur is better man. fur. Gosh. Well they they did a real they did a real cute job on her face. Like she's she's still got the brown spots, but hang on. I mean hang on. Don't laugh. She's an angel. But we took her to a different lady. We're, we're, we severed ties with the lady in the van yep. and we actually yep. think she might have been a little bit abusive. Mm-hmm. Um because she she groomed a cat way too fast. Look at that. Now this lady took two hours and it was mainly to get knots out. This is a, this is a maintenance trip. Don't look at her body. Her body <laughs> is uneven, but look at that face. Look at that sweet clip. It did a good job of shaping the overall, like the She's face shape. she got a sweet face. The, the actual center <laughs> of the face and being all squished in and it's having giant poo trails coming out of her eyes. Somebody said, I want a vulva faced cat. 
with, with brown <laughs> flaps. No, I'm going to go the other way on that. I think this is more of the front and the back of your cat look the same. <laughs> What's uh, Who's that guy that's in all the Star Wars movies that has a face like that? What's his name? The little guy, Nom Nom? What's his name? <laughs> Nom Nubbin? Who's the little guy with the, looks like he's got the little flappy face? Uh, the Lando Calrissian co- co-pilot yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his name? Nom Nom? You, you I think made, his name's you Nom. You made it leave my mind. Nom Nubbin. Empire co-pilot. Nien Nub. Oh, that's it. N-I-E-N-N-U-N-B. N-I-E-N. I don't know how to pronounce it. Nien Nub. Oh, look at that guy. He does kind of look like my cat. Nah. No. So, yeah, you're, and your cat's, like, the problem is your cat's head is uh, too big for its body, too, a that's little not, bit. That's not true. It's, she just has a furry head on, on her little skinny body. Yeah. She weighs six pounds. Yeah. Well. You don't think that's kind of a sweet cut? It's the flaps, it's be- right? It's, it's the flaps and the, the old oozing. cuts. I'll, I'll give you that. It's better than the old ones. Mm. Give you that, and I like I like the shaping. I like they they try to make a shape out of the face, like you know, yeah. kind of like an oval shape, even and <laughs> face like shape, <laughs> leaving some body on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, having a little place for the the body. The, the body of the cat still looks a little bit like a towel left on the floor, a wet towel left on the floor of the bathroom too long, <laughs> and a little bit like a little bit fleshy, a little bit like uh like Thanksgiving raw Thanksgiving turkey. Like a little bit, a little bit dimpled, like it, it used to be covered with feathers, and they were she plucked. She does, she does. She looks kind of like a game hen. Yeah, and uh, and of course, of course, Madeline brings her home and goes, "Oh, look at her! She looks so great." I was like, "Oh, she looks so great." She says, "Oh yeah," but but uh, but the lady did find some uh, slight, <laughs> some slightly concerning marks on her, some like gray brown marks on her that we need to get checked out now. She's self harming, you think? No, she might be cutting. Now I'm just start stacking up those bills. <laughs> another twelve hundred bucks. Here you go. What, what, what do you think that could be, though? Marks. What are the what are kind of? Oh, I mean? don't know. She. We already got her an EKG uh, to figure out what kind of heart medicine we eventually need to get the cat on. Mm-hmm. And no, no, we'll just get her checked out. You know, it's you know, it's like it's like going to a chiropractor. You know, there's never going to be a time you go to the chiropractor and they say you're good. Right. That's not how it works. You don't go in the chiropractor and they go you're good. Just, you know, uh, you know, try to stand up straight and like drink more water. No, they're, they're going to have like a whole situation. They're going to have a whole program for you. And I like our cat place. It's very convenient to get to, which is a big <laughs> thing for me. We can literally see it from it our house. It's like your podcasting office by the train tracks. You would not believe how much stuff in my life is chosen according to how easy it is to get I, I, to. I would believe it. Would you believe that? <laughs> everything, everything I know about you, yes, I would totally every, believe it. Every service that I can utilize that's within two blocks of my house is a service that I use, even if it's not that good. Part of your reputation is based on uh, getting paper towels delivered to you in a, in a giant truck in a huge cardboard box. Well, there's levels to that. Like, I could get that at the Walgreens, which is two blocks away. Or I could have the kid bring it to me with the Instacart. Or I could mm-hmm. get it from Reno in bulk and have a, I could have a paper towel subscription. I don't know anybody that would ever actually do that. But mm-hmm. I could subscribe to paper towels and they'd come mm-hmm. every 30 days. Mm-hmm. So, what an angel. I love our friends. Uh, all of them. I love them all so much. John, am I the only person that doesn't like Face ID? Am I, am I alone in this? Am, well, let me put it this way. Am I, I mean, I'm looking for some consolation here. I do not like Face ID nearly as much as Touch ID by a long, long shot. And I can't decide if it's just my face. I've, I've redone it, I think, three times now, trying different angles. But every angle that it will let me do continues 
to rarely work on the first try unless I hold the phone exactly this far from my face at this angle. And I find it approximately one-third as fast and useful as Touch ID, maybe, maybe worse. I like Touch ID, which I still have on my iPads. I still like that so much more. I like it better for Apple Pay. I like it better for 1Password. I like it better for logging in. I never have to think about the angle. I never, tell, tell me, am I, am I off base? Am I doing it wrong? Do you, what's your feeling on Touch ID versus Face ID? So you're not the only one, because I have seen at least one other prominent person. I forget who. Oh, and just, just, I'm sorry, one last thing to clarify. I say this because I feel like the crazy, the only crazy person in the village. Because according to all my friends who have a podcast, it's like the greatest thing that's ever happened. You don't even notice having Face ID anymore, because it's so easy to use. By the time you've picked up your phone, it's already got your face. It is totally transparent. And after a day of having Face ID, you don't even notice that you have it anymore. And I feel like my experience has been very not that. So that, that, that's my angle coming to this, is that I do like Touch ID better, and I think Face ID does not work well with my face. So I can't speak for other tech podcasts, but I would call that summary a mischaracterization of the discussion at ATP about this specific topic. But mm, talking uh, more about some relay shows. That, that said... Um, you're not the only one. There's at least one very prominent person who constantly complains about Face ID and begs for Touch ID to come back. I forget who it is. Maybe it's Steve Trouton Smith. Maybe it's somebody else on Twitter who I see. So a very, very vocal, maybe you don't follow this person, but a very vocal uh, opponent of Face ID just begging for Touch ID to come back. Now, I don't have a Face ID phone, so I can't speak from personal experience, but I could say this. After the whole, like, oh, here's the iPhone 10, and let's all talk about it on our podcast phase where we had discussions and i will try to recap what i think atp said about it in a moment Mm -hmm. i generally don't hear from people about face id anymore now it doesn't mean that it's better than touch id it just means that it seems like everyone has accommodated it has has like made their peace with whatever face id is they've made their peace with it like it doesn't constantly come up as like a thorn like if marco's not constantly complaining about it you can bet that it's mostly not bothering him because he's been playing about the same keyboard for two years right same thing with my wife who has an iphone 10 she doesn't give a damn about technology. If if Face ID, if she hadn't accommodated Face ID, she would be complaining to me about it constantly. I probably would have made her return the phone just to make the complaint stop, right? Because mm-hmm. she doesn't care about the techie stuff or whatever. I also think that she would probably say that Touch ID was better. But practically speaking, she's gotten used to it. She doesn't complain to me anymore about Face ID. She just accepts its limitations. Now, as for what I've said about... Uh, Face ID, and I think when we all talked about an ATP, um, we talked about the ways in which we have accommodated Touch ID, and you said, oh, I don't have to have it on a certain angle or whatever, but there are accommodations that we all make for Touch ID. Mm. Even if it's only just making sure you can put a finger on the thing, making sure your finger is dry, which is the thing that I do frequently, having being, having aware of which one of my fingers might be wet and using the other finger to do Touch I ID. I have what zero well. problem getting Touch ID to work. Sometimes when your fingers are wet, it does that. And well, yes, you can train I mean, it. If you your can fingers train are wet, wet, don't use finger. your iPad. Like, what's wrong with you? Don't do that. Yeah, but there, sometimes it's just convenient. Anyway, there are accommodations that are made for Touch ID, right? They mm-hmm. are lesser accommodations than the accommodations that you have to make for Face ID because Touch ID accommodations mostly have to do with keeping your fingers dry and making sure you can get to the thing and put the right part of your finger on it and having that visible, you know, all, all those things like getting to the place, especially on an iPad where you might have it rotated or whatever and finding the side that has it and stuff like that. Um, but face ID accommodations don't just involve your fingertips or your hands or your arms. They usually involve your entire body posture because you have to now get that phone up to your face at the right angle and distance for it to work well. And that involves like you can't just do it. You can't reach onto your nightstand in your stupor and do touch ID or you have to 
arrange your entire body to get this object aligned with your face. Whereas with just your hands, it has and your to fingers, be at a certain angle. And I mean, I'm just saying from process of not process of elimination, but from experience from using this over and over and over again, I, I will try to use it as casually as I use touch ID. And I'll give you an example in a minute, but you know, especially if I'm kind of like laying around in bed in the morning, I have to hold it out at a certain angle, um, at a certain length away frequently, very, very frequently. I mean, 50% of the time misses on the first try. And then I have to like hit cancel and, and do it again. Or, you know, I guess I know there's lots of ways to do this. My point is it is far from automatic for me unless I hold it like this. Yeah, and that's part of the body accommodation. Because if you can snake your fingertip out of your covers and onto the touch ID thing, it will unlock. Whereas the face ID thing, if your face is half buried in a pillow and you're laying on your side, face ID can't see half your face, it's not going to unlock, right? So the physical bodily accommodations for face ID are larger and more severe than those required for touch ID. But all that said, like for, you know, for all the people in, in my virtual and actual life who have including other people at work and stuff who have face ID, everyone else seems to have accepted that these accommodations are a thing that they have to do. Have accepted, hmm. found all the places where face ID doesn't work and have accepted the idea that if they want it to work when they're in their bed, their face can't be smushed halfway that's, into their pillow and has to be, that's not an improvement has to be to the right distance and so on and so forth. Now, uh, if you ask people to think it's a net improvement, I'm not sure what answer you would get because there is, you know, the optimal case for face ID where it happens on the first try is slightly less fidgety than touch ID because you can pick up your phone any way you want. And if your natural inclination either is or becomes to put it at the position and angle where it will unlock on the first try and you like build that habit or you've already had that habit, it is less work than touch ID was because you don't have to shimmy your hand and get the correct finger on the correct thing, especially with like gloves and other stuff like that. Right. 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 Um, so I think maybe the best case of face ID is better than the best case for touch ID. Average case, I can't imagine it being better, but it just seems like a thing that everyone got used to. And I think and continued uh, and continue to publicly laud. And and that's that here's I mean, like so here's one thing just as another data point. And I, I think this came very much out of I don't know, this is just you know how everybody has their own habits about how they use things. One of the habits I have for how I use things is I pick up the device kind of from the bottom. If I know I'm just doing a little quick thing, I'll do it kind of from the bottom, put my thumb on the touch ID, and it comes up. Now, like, for example, in the morning, I have this compulsive thing I do in the morning, which is especially Tuesday mornings, I go and I check and see which ones need a system update. And every single morning I go and I update, get apps updated on all the devices just because it's a thing I do in the morning. I have the two iPads that work with the thumb and I got the touch ID. And I'm frequently doing, there's this motion that I picked up from the touch ID days, which is you just, even before it's out of my pocket, I've clicked on the, I've clicked on with my thumb. It's already unlocking. I'm doing my thing. And I very quickly hit the side button to, you know, put it away. I don't leave it on. Now, maybe that's part of my problem is I tend to click, click, you know, click once to turn it off. Maybe I need to stop doing that because that's where it feels onerous is when I'm trying to do stuff. I'm walking around, I'm doing a thing and I need to just, I'm doing things, maybe copying from one device to the other, doing something. That's where it drives me nuts. It isn't that like, oh, I'm going to use this phone in a session for one hour. It's the hundreds of times a day that I turn my phone on that I feel like it dogs me. And, and it's the fact that because I'm doing that more, I'm needing to do it more. And that's when the fail rate, I think, builds up. So maybe I just need to stop turning it off as much. Maybe I just need to have it stay on longer. I don't know. But I really feel the friction with it. It does not feel better. It does not feel like an improvement. If anything, over time, it bugs me more. So I think the reason people may still be saying nice things about Face ID uh, 
and are only saying nice things about Face ID is probably from tech nerds who marvel at the the technology. It is, it's really right? quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it is it is impressive technologically speaking. That, that's why I was using my wife as an example. She didn't care about the tech, right? And so I feel like if it was really failing on a on a fundamental level and really just annoying her, there would be no. Yeah, but think about the technology. She doesn't care, right? So that's why I yeah. think it is passing the regular person. That's a bar. good. That's a good data point. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other reason I think tech people may be saying nice things about it is tech people either you know tech people have some foundation for believing that face id may get better in the future right and so i think I, the first I wouldn't be version, surprised i wouldn't be surprised at all if it got yeah. way better the first version of touch id wasn't that different from the second version it was like a little bit slower it sure got but, faster though it got yeah, so but, much faster but to me it was like night and day because i had a six and then i had a seven and i I felt the delay on the six and the seven cross some threshold where it's not as bad. I still get the same number of failures. Maybe I just have lots of wet fingers. I'm constantly doing dishes or something. <laughs> I still get the same. <laughs> you have eight. so many wet fingers. This is where I, actually it is when I'm doing when I'm doing dishes. My phone isn't even in the kitchen. It's in the it's in the dining room on like the sideboard thing. And sometimes I will want to like pick a different podcast like the podcast is over and the one that's next in the playlist is not the one i want to play next so i have to go right. quickly go in and pick a different one which means i have to take my wet hands and unlock the phone mm-hmm. and like tap on a different thing and so i'm they're wiping my hands on a towel i try to unlock the phone like sometimes i, I resort to entering my passcode because it mm-hmm. has failed too many times on my wet finger and yes i've tried training it with a wet finger and that kind of worked for a little while but then it started huh. messing up on my dry fingers too i bet it's, so. ref- I bet it's refracting just a little bit in enough places that it's confused. It's when you when your fingers get wet, your skin stretches out and it makes the patterns in your finger. Oh, you think it's bigger. it's deformed? I, I was yeah. thinking it was because of. Okay, that's interesting. No, it's okay. not. It, yeah, it's it's because it, it's the same reason your fingers get wrinkled when you stay in the water really long yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Your skin gets bigger and it wrinkles up, right? And so Ugh. when you, I don't like the so, thought of that. Yeah, so that's why you can you can wet your fingers and your skin gets bigger and then train on your wet fingers, but it depends on how much moisture because there's a difference between I've been doing dishes for 20 minutes versus I got a little water on my finger 2 seconds ago and so it's actually a hard problem. But mm-hmm. um but I find myself in that situation a lot. Now, once I have a Face ID phone, like I'm kind of glad that I skipped this generation. I'm still sticking with my 7 because I kind of fear the loss in inefficiency because I think a lot of my habits are like yours that don't involve like I make accommodations for, but my accommodations are all about cleverly pulling it out of my pocket while snaking my finger onto the right spot so by the time i even get it up to my face it's unlocked yes and you can't do that with face id it's a different accommodation but the the process doesn't get to start until you've done the the accommodation way up higher right or, or even just the people who yeah if it if it gets it it's fast enough it's just it's a little bit like like siri where like if it didn't get it then it's an ain't gonna go yeah you could try again uh, but like the, the other thing is um some people have habits based like they they never have that phone their phone in face id like they pull it out of their pocket and just turn it to look up at it and it never leaves the it, like it never goes above belt level like they use you know take mm-hmm. their phone look at their text and put it right back in their pocket and it never got above the, the height of their belt well it's never gonna unlock with face ID i look from like that i look like i'm a creeper taking a photo of someone when i unlock my phone yeah, you're probably you're probably so, overdoing it now. Uh, try to try to accommodate for the thing. And it's like, I oh, it's well, like, no, but the, the think about this though. Think I'm, I'm telling you, I I've used the app called Moment. I know how many times I unlock my phone literally during a day. I do it a lot. Do you think I would be doing this in a different way if it worked? It's because I get so many wrong the first try that now I I have I know I have to do it in this certain way to get it to go. You need to gamify that and start seeing what your success percentage is. So then you can well, adjust I, like your I say, techniques. At one point, to... I gave up and started over, and I thought, okay, well, maybe my problem is I'm holding. I want to hold it closer and lower down than 
than uh, the first time that I did it. Because you know how it is with anything. Like, they, like for example, I heard a great tip not long ago. I don't know if this is true, but I heard a great tip that you should retrain Siri by speaking the normal distance away that you would to say, hey, dingus. That one problem, I don't know if this is true, but people say that if you retrain it, do your hey, dingus training with it a distance away that's similar to where it would be in the future, it actually does better. And I thought, I thought maybe something similar would happen here. We're like, okay, maybe I need to just have it lower down and have it shoot at my meat beard. But I think it's not getting the data points that it needs. It needs more nose and eyebrows in order to do it. Oh, here's a funny one. Uh, because I snore, I often sleep with a breathe right strip. If I have a breathe right strip on, won't do it. Yeah, you just uh, you put dazzle camouflage in your face. You've defeated the the image uh, recognition. <laughs> I'm, I'm a battleship. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> razzle dazzle, right? This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Linode. You can learn more about Linode right now by visiting linode.com/diffs. With Linode, you'll have access to a suite of powerful hosting options. With prices starting at $5 a month, you'll be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. Linode offers industry-leading performance with native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They now have 10, 10 data centers spread all across the world, meaning you can serve your customers even quicker than before. They have an API that allows you to easily automate tasks or develop custom applications in the cloud. And everything is manageable via the command line. All of Linode's pricing tiers feature hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups and node balancers. And you know, Linode offer additional storage too. Block storage is now out of beta and is available in Fremont and Newark. And Linode plan to expand their block storage to all data centers by June. How about that? Linode is great for tasks like hosting large databases, running a mail server, operating a VPN, running Docker containers, and hosting a private Git server, and so much more. Oh, and you know what, by the way? Linode are hiring right now, too. How about that? I want you to go to check out linode.com slash careers. Here's what you need to know. Linode has fantastic pricing options available. Their plans start at one gigabit of RAM, gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month, and they offer high memory plans starting with 16 gigabytes of RAM. And as a listener, listener of Reconcilable Differences, if you sign up at linode.com slash diffs, you'll not only be supporting us, but you'll also get $20 toward any Linode plan. On the one gigabyte of RAM plan, that's four free months. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there is nothing to lose. So please, you go right now, go to linode.com slash diffs, that's D-I-F-F-S, to learn more. You sign up, take advantage of that $20 credit, or use the promo code diffs2018 at checkout. Our thanks to Linode for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I think a similar, when you talk about these kinds of evolutions, you're right. I mean, the, 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 there's so many things on, in the Apple, even just the iOS ecosystem, that are so quantum better than they were on the first cut, right? I mean, it's like, where do you even begin? But I'll tell you one is like, I still, boy, I'm going to be real counter-revolution. There's still so much I miss about having like a normal button interface. Like when I'm on my iPad, I just fly around. I'm pretty, so like, okay, so on an iPad, I still like the way of getting around with the double click on the home button. I've gotten used to all the gestures I need to do stuff on my iPhone 10. I I, I know how they work. I even know how to do the in, incredibly mysterious incandescent um, incantation, what is it, like a J swipe, the swipe that you do to bring up the stuff when you're in the homepage, the uh, springboard? The multitasking uh, switcher. That, yep. that one's pretty arcane. 
but I can even do that. Now, what I will tell you is once I've gotten into that or even just sliding from the bottom to get between apps, I'll tell you, man, it is fast as snot. Like there is no lag at all. It is buttery smooth. I'm totally blown away by how fast it is at doing that kind of interface stuff. And you know what, dude, I even turned the animations back on and it doesn't bother me. I even turned back on the like, oh, it, when I pick up my phone, you know, uh, I used to, I used to have, uh, have, it the made sense on, thing. well, no, no, no. But remember back, it used to be the thing was you had that dumb thing. It didn't make a lot of sense on touch ID, which is like, when you pick it up, light up the screen. And it didn't make a lot of sense. It does oh, make sense. Raised to wake. Yeah. Raised to wake. Like I always had that turned off. Obviously for obvious reasons, it makes sense to have that on with the uh, face ID. But so I don't have a complaint at all with the speed of any of that stuff. I, some of those interface decisions are still, they still do not feel as fast as the button world to me. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll do one more time. I'll do one more retake of my face and see what I can get away with and see if that improves it. I would imagine the, the biggest frustration with the button interface versus the swipe is having to deal with both. Like once all the iPads go to the swipe interface, which should happen this year, like at least then it'll be uniform and you won't find yourself like, pressing for a button that's not there or swiping in a way on your iPad. That you, oh, that I, I still feel work. like an idiot when I have to do something on my wife's phone and I'm, I'm dragging from the wrong area. It's, it's, it's sort of like my days when I was half, half on windows and half on Mac and I would get mm-hmm. equally bad at both. And now I, I still, I'm on my, on my iPhone, which I've had for several months now, I still forget. I got to swipe down from the top, right. Uh, to get to the control center yeah, stuff. I just did that the other day. Try, I tried to pull up a control center on my wife's phone and I flicked from the bottom like five times before I remembered, <laughs> oh yeah, it's not there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it takes a while. But, you know, with that said, I, I agree. I mean, this is, this is if this is what they're banking on, then it, it's going to have to get faster. It almost certainly will. But my stick in the ground as of today is it's not nearly as convenient as Touch ID. So uh, not to be a pessimist, but uh, we just got done saying how uh, Touch ID got better. I feel like it's easier to make Touch ID better than it is going to be to make Face ID better. Because to in make Touch to ID be better, secure? like, I mean, in terms of speed and and uh, accuracy, right? So to make Touch ID better, I think basically all they did was speed up the little miniature, the, you know, the, speed up the processing of getting the signal off the sensor. Maybe the sensor also improved in some way, but I don't think they like doubled the resolution of the sensor. I think it's basically the same resolution. It's just a question of how fast can the hardware process the information coming off the sensor. And that's mm-hmm. why Touch ID version 2 is better than Touch ID version 1. And there was no Touch ID version 3 as far as I know. Like Touch ID version 2 was so much faster that it, like I said, I think it crossed that threshold and people aren't begging for Touch ID to be faster anymore, right? Maybe mm-hmm. they'd be asking for it to be more accurate, but it doesn't seem like they did much in that. Face ID, on the other hand, is so much more complicated that it's not as if, oh, if, we, if you just gave me twice as much CPU power, uh, it'll be twice as fast. That I think that's true for, for Touch ID, not true for Face ID because it's just so much a harder problem. And so for, to truly get Face ID to be better, yes, you need more computing power, to either do the same recognition in less time or to do more fancy recognition in the same amount of time. But you also need to deal with stuff like your breathe right strips and weird angles and well, hats, yeah. you know, and all that stuff. Like that's going to be really hard to do. And I think it's a much harder problem. So I am, it wouldn't surprise me if face ID and the next iPhone, the only difference is that it happens a little bit faster because the CPU is faster, but basically the same stuff. Is I, I think, I think I see what you're saying. I mean, what would you think about it is like how many, I don't know, you can tell me hundreds or thousands of data points. It's, I don't know if that's the right word, but basically it's, it's got this topography of your face and it needs to check, let's say for the sake of argument, a hundred, although it's almost certainly many, many, many more, but like, let's say there's a hundred data points where those have to be, or that such percentage of these has to be captured, correctly identified and in the right place in order for it to say, I'm satisfied that this is a match, unlock it. And the thing is, like, I bet it can get 
almost impossibly fast at calculating whether it has enough, but I bet there's still some pretty heavy lifting at just capturing that information. You know what I mean? The computing of that information, I imagine you can improve on, but can you capture faster than that? I think it's it's the opposite. I think the capture uh, is plenty fast and can get faster easily. It's the processing it's hard because it's not just as, yeah, because the processing is not just a simple like match and it's not even just a simple set of rules and it's not just a simple percentage that the the matching has to be the part that's smart that has to figure out when you're wearing a scarf and when you're wearing a hat and when you have a breathe right strip and like you know it is so incredibly dumb in the grand scheme of things right now that it has no awareness of what a face is or any you know it has has no it's just simply like it's like training a neural net you just feed it a bunch of pictures and it's like i don't know anything except for the training data so <laughs> you know depending on the training data you, you give me <laughs> I i'm really will good at won't. threes and really good yeah. at bs <laughs> right yeah exactly so if you if you never uh, fed me any training data with breathe right strips i have no idea what that is and it's gonna get a result that is not what you wanted it to be okay great so we'll give you training data with breathe right strips oh what about the color ones with superheroes on them oh i have no idea again it's more dazzle camouflage like it has it, you're not <laughs> the thing doesn't know what a face is right right um and so I showed, you, I showed you the thing where our our nest cam my, my daughter was was dressed as a as a pikachu and there was a pikachu like what was it on her somewhere on her body it was, it was dressed up like pikachu day i guess and like it identified pikachu as a face i yeah. thought that was kind of fun yeah because it, it and like it's not again this has to happen in fractions of a second so they can't do you know the world's best processing on this thing to figure out what a face is and like it's not it's not a thing that understands people or faces or recognizes things the way the human brain does it's just it's the be- it's best effort right and so mm-hmm. they can improve it but kind of almost kind of like autocorrect it would be actually easy to think you're improving it but actually make it worse for some people you know to try to apply machine learning i don't even know what face ID uses for all i know it doesn't use a neural net trained like maybe uses just a set of heuristics who knows but mm-hmm. it is a much more complicated problem than taking essentially a 2d map from a 2d sensor and matching it up this is a a bunch of data points pulled from a 3d world and that have to, there has to be some awareness of like you know so you got you captured at this angle uh, but we've trained at all these different angles and trying to find the angle that it matches at and trying to know what you can discard okay that's a scarf you can discard all those things mm-hmm. do you really just need like the eyeballs the nose and the eyebrows do you even need the eyebrows at all is it just pupil distance plus bridge of nose plus cheekbones like who it's it's actually probably much more limited than we think it is. I think people have done experiments to see like how much of your face can you hide and it still works. How much you know? If you, I feel if like you st- I feel like Rand talked about that at first that it seemed like different kinds of glasses things and hat things would confuse it, where maybe the eye and eye, the eyebrow line might be more important than we would have expected. Yeah, I think yeah. she talked about that. Yeah, it's 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 not entirely clear, but it's but it's just you know I'm not going to say it's a hack, but it's it's a very complicated set of rules and uh, you know. Long term, long term, like when when we're all, you know, 80 years old, yes, I'm sure it'll be fantastically better. But next year, is it going to get as better as Touch ID did in one year? Maybe not. So do you use, um, you'll see where I'm going with this. Do you use Halide? Uh, the camera app? Yeah. I have it installed. I don't think I've ever used it. Check it out. They just added something in the, in the latest thing that's really an interesting little gag. But Halide's a really cool camera. Personally, I just use the built-in camera because I want something that's fast that I can get to from the lock screen. But if you're going to look at a third-party app, Halide is very, very well done. It's got a lot of options, and it's, one, it's an app that you could love. It's one of those apps, unlike some of these apps. There's a lot of good ones out there, but some of them are awfully fiddly for what you get. Halide gives you a lot of the control 
uh, of the of an SLR, uh, a lot of the manual stuff, but it all has all the automatic stuff in there too, and it's all pretty easy to get to. And as of the latest version, it's got this crazy, you know, the sort of the way that like James puts the nutty stuff into the about screen of, on um, on forty two. I was going to call it on uh, PCALC. There's a really crazy thing in Halide where you take a, you click on depth, so you do some kind of photo, and it, and it uses the depth stuff, right? So you take a photo of something with the depth stuff on. It's just a regular old photo. Then you can take another photo and basically make that a 3D poster that you hang inside the other image. So you basically, you move the camera around in space and you know, it sort of calibrates. And you say, okay, this area right here hanging over my bed, I want my face to be hanging there. I showed my wife this last night and it's bananas. At first it's really cool because you go, oh, that's really neat. There's a 2D poster of that image hanging in 3D space. But here's the neat part. Now you walk around that quote-unquote poster, and you realize it's the fully extruded 3D version version of what the camera saw. And it's it's hilarious and creepy that you start out looking at it. It looks like something from like a like a Doctor Who effect from, you know, five years ago. But you start out looking at it straight on, and you walk around it, and you so, slowly see all the little dots and lines that it interpreted using the depth camera. It's very creepy, but very, very cool. You should try it. I don't have a depth camera. Oh, sorry. Uh, your your <laughs> wife should try it. Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that feature, but I've seen lots of stuff like that that uses the depth information. When it's hard to share, I mean, it's because like you, you because it's kind of a walking around in three D experience. I mean, it's a silly little proof of concept fun thing, like like what James does with PCALC. It's not really that useful for anything, but it is. It's it's, it's certainly very interesting. There's another app I use. Oh, I forget what it's called, Phonos or Phobos or something like that, that will uh, basically do a similar thing with showing you like what it sees in terms of 3D depth stuff. I love that people are having fun with that and showing what it can do. But maybe in some ways it also shows you the limitations because when you actually see that thing, if you if you imagine the the, the depth captured image of your face that's used to do whatever. You know, the thing is, if you were to see what the camera actually saw, you'd see like what a construction it is, that it's interpolating the depths of these things in pretty gross, broad ways. But it is very interesting. Yeah. And probably, like I said, probably using a lot less information than you think. Mm -hmm. Face ID supposedly uses way more data points than Touch ID, which only means that Touch ID is, again, using way fewer data points than you would think. Like, oh, it's looking at my unique fingerprint in every little line. (laughs) That was, when that number came out, I was pretty shocked. I mean, it was a couple orders of magnitude more uh, data points to the face than the touch. I guess it, but it wasn't so much to say, I guess I'm repeating what you're saying. It's not so much to say that photo ID is a million times more secure (laughs) than we thought, more that Touch ID was maybe a little less uniquely secure than we expected yeah i miss it i want it back well when you buy stuff so you, when you buy stuff like if you're using apple pay oh my god you got to hold it out in front of you and double click the side button like <laughs> like, like like hold it in the right way and you're doing stuff with money and like ugh. yeah i think my wife said she actually had come around to the face id uh, way to do it found it easier than holding your finger because basically oh, man. Uh, once once it recognizes your face you don't have to do anything anymore whereas with the double tap and hold thing you have to sit there or just like reading your thumb reading your thumb okay boop, you never know when you can take it off whereas this it recognizes your face and then the phone is like free you don't have to interact with it anymore and now it's just a question of getting it to do the bloop bloop on the thing but it's ready to pay at that point i think that was her argument for why she liked it better i guess she's got come around on the double tap side button thing I was such a bad. I was such a bad dad this morning, and it hurt my heart. What a bad dad I was! 
Um, my wife was brushing my daughter's hair because I was in the middle of doing something very important, which is I was changing the passcode on one of my devices. No big deal, right? But you know, you go into the very prayerful state and you want to make sure you get everything exactly right. And like (laughs) her loose tooth came out. She pulled out her loose tooth. There was much exalting and excitement because she just pulled out like, you know, she's coming up on the, on the end teeth and like one of her little bottom teeth came out. And I, and they're like, look, look, look. And I'm like, no, do not speak to me. Because I had just started, you know, you got to enter it twice. I had just mm-hmm. started entering it in my new passcode. I felt like such a tool. I'm, I'm going to guess that your family is accustomed to this, this state of Merlin. No, no, they're no. Not, they're, they're not used to the, uh, daddy's changing his passcodes. No, you know, you know I, how I'm he gets. No. Is the phrase, you know how he gets okay, every pass between the, the ladies in your house? I'm going to give you a partial on that because they know there's some stuff that I'm super intense about Mm -hmm. and everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. Daddy wants the food to all be done at the same time and (laughs) be hot, right? The food I've been working, you understand how many hours I have been actively or passively working on this meal, whether it's instant pot, instant pot, instant pot or sous vide or whatever it is. I've been making the family meal as I often do. And it's a huge deal to me. No, you can't have the noodles yet because the noodles come out Exactly. This is where the Echo Family of products can really come in handy because I time it down to the second. And if you think you're going to walk into my kitchen area and start making soap, you got another thing coming. You need you need to walk away from that stuff. You do not come into Daddy's Kitchen Island area. Yeah, can I make some slime now? They won't even ask. They just start doing it. Oh my god! Can I? I, I'm I'm the same way. Although my family does not care that I am that way. Can you imagine this when you were a kid? Your father is literally finishing the sear on the food. And, and, and you as a child walk in and say, I'm hungry. And you say, that's really good timing because we're going to eat in like six minutes. No, I'm hungry now. I'm hu- no, no, I'm, no, but I, now I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. It's like Homer with the burrito. <laughs> oh. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. You want an organ? You, you, want a, you want a protein drink while daddy's making a sear on the steak? D- don't you know how that hurts daddy's heart? Uh, on the on the the hot food front, I had a small victory about that. I get it. I'm I'm like you. Then I want the food. You heat the bowls. Yeah, very very picky. Got to eat it right away. There's you know. Then my family just doesn't care. They're like whatever. Um, <sighs> drives me nuts. But uh, recently, it, you know, we've been trading off preparing. Well, usually, my wife prepares lunches for the kids because at that time I'm in the shower in the morning. Um, but when she's not there, I prepare the lunches for them when she travels for work or whatever. And uh, my daughter has been into hot lunches lately, mm-hmm. like just make some kind of hot food and stick it in like a basically a little thermos yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, that can be a nice lunch. Yeah, I mean, she's getting sick of other stuff. You like put, you put like hot water into the into the thermos? Oh, I mean, some, like mac and cheese is the big thing she's been on. But yeah, like, you can preheat out. the thermos before you put the mac and cheese in. Yeah, yeah. I'm, but, but anyway, so when I do it, uh, you know, you make a big thing of mac and cheese. And so on the first day... It's, you know, right out of the pot. And, of course, I'm putting it literally right out of the pot into the thermos. But then the second and third day, it's out of the fridge into the microwave and out of the microwave into the thermos, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when I microwave things, I microwave them until they're hot because I like hot food. Mm-hmm. And my wife microwaves things until they're no longer cold. Oh, you know what? That's the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. My God. Yeah. And so <sighs> my daughter said, I like it better when Daddy makes my lunch because he, <gasps> because when I open up the – when she opens up the mac and cheese – Right at lunchtime, it's still hot when I make it. Whereas she opens up when it's just merely microwave, not to be cold anymore. But lunchtime rolls around, no matter how good that thermos is, it's just kind of tepid, and it's not the worst than tepid. And you're, and you're not allowed to gloat. You can't gloat about that. 
was like, yes, hot food. <laughs> hot food is good. Oh, but you know that, you know what I'm talking about though. I, I remember when I first learned the trick, because I've always loved those big Stanley Green thermoses. Like whenever I would do a road trip, I would bring a thermos of coffee, put really hot boiling water in there, even the night before. Like, but get that thermos crazy, crazy hot before you put, put the food or the beverage in. Mm-hmm. Ideal. Yep. You gotta, you gotta do everything you can because you know it's nothing. You can't can't fight city hall. Can't fight no. thermodynamics. Like it's gonna cool <laughs> off eventually. Do you have uh, an instant pot? Yep. Um, we've got a stew recipe we've made three times. I've made three times in the last week that I am very very satisfied with. You need to send that because we have been rotating through instant pot stew recipes. We had our own non instant pot stew recipe yeah. that we tried to adapt to the instant pot, and then we found a bunch of instant pot ones and and. We like all of them fine. Mine's not but. very fancy, but it's been real dependent. You know, my wife did one that I was, it had to be some kind of like a, uh, an illusion. It involves using um, tomato juice, which I thought mm-hmm. sounded really weird, but yeah. we did it and it was amazing. And I think it infused it with a lot of like glutamate. Like it was, so it was, it yeah, was tomato. A lot of the ones we do have tomato paste, actually. There's got to okay. be a tomato component. Well, yeah, the one I've been doing, I mean, I'll tell you my one thing about the Instant Pot. The, the, the only thing about the Instant Pot that drives me nuts is, is that they want you to be cute. And the cute thing is you do everything in the Instant Pot, and that makes it fun. So the very first time I made stew, I made the mistake of using a recipe that, first of all, where you flour coat, you know, the meat. Yeah, they, they try to make you browner in the Instant Pot. You've That's not going to happen. You've got to be kidding me. To, for not a family happen. of three or four, that amount of food you're going to brown in this, like, what, eight-inch eight diameter pot? So, and it will wreck your Instant Pot because it splatters all over the place. Now, we never even attempted that. I said, well, forget it. Well, no, obviously, no, no. we're not going to brown it in the Instant Pot. So I brown, brown, I brown everything separately. in a nice big Calphalon pan like a gentleman. Maybe just saute mm-hmm. the onions in there as well. Then deglaze it and put it all into the pot. But like, man, it's great. I've got – so this this one I do is really simple. It's just carrots, parsnips, uh, peewee potatoes, garlic thyme, bay leaves. And then I put in more beef, beef broth than they say. But at least like um, like two cups of beef broth. Just do that. Do that for on no manual. No tomato for, component, no wine, no um, brown sugar. It comes up surprisingly glutamatey and savory. I am going to try wa- adding some wine the next time that I do it because I really like that particular taste. But the, the one, I'll, you know, I'll find the one with the tomato juice because it, it worked out really well. So, we, the other thing I, I have a problem with is I don't, in general, the reason we haven't had a pressure cooker for a long time and the reason we have a slow cooker but never use it is I don't like uh, food made for people with no teeth. I don't like food that's mush, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's – yeah. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these slow cooker – you know, and so there's, there's a component in stew where you, you stew meat and you want to cook it to death so that it is no longer tough, right? If you're that's doing, a, if you're doing of, like a big – we did like an over three-pound pot roast the other day and like if you want it to be cooked all the way through and pretty tender, you, you need to do it that whole time. But – a lot of these recipes also you do the, the 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 potatoes, parsnips, carrots like at the end, so you do have yeah, some control. Exactly, exactly. So that's yeah. the, the the recipe is like just throw it all in the pot, but by the time it's done, your carrots are mushed, your that's potatoes so are mushed. You got to do a fast good. release, throw it in, and do like ten minutes plus a natural, re- <laughs> natural yeah, the, release. My my instant pot, my instant pot's quote unquote fast release still takes forever. Oh, it takes. I've, I've counted it because you see the count up on the clock. It's it takes about two and a half to three minutes to instant release. Yeah. So, but that's what we have to do. We've got the timings where we do put it in for like twenty five or you know twenty five five minutes and then let all the steam out throw in the carrots and the potatoes put it back in for 15 more minutes they get it back up to pressure and then everything will be re- and then after it's totally done cooking that's when we put in the corn or the peas mm. I would recommend corn yeah the peas good. you gotta go easy 
Well, send me your, I'll send you some of my favorites. You send me some of yours. Hmm. All right. Quite a life we uh, lead at this point. Yeah, although we, uh, we overstewed ourselves with the Instant Pot this winter, and we suggested that we should have stew again. I'm like, no, I, I can't have stew again. We've had it. We make so much. We make- I want to explore more. I want to explore. You know, a lot of it, the thing is, we got the official Instant Pot cookbook, and it's hilarious because it is very cute. It's got mm-hmm. a lot of like cute recipes in it. That's yeah, a make, little- a bir- make a birthday cake in your Instant Pot. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's, there's all kinds of like, like, oh, come on. Really? Like the soups I buy, the stews I buy, like a bunch of the chicken dishes but there were some in there that were so silly where it's either the kind of thing where you would want to like really sear something and then take it off or it was the kind of thing where like it was your right birthday cake you're making grilled cheese in your instant pot like it's you like no it. sorry you just got you can sous vide it mm-hmm. yeah yeah people like that full experience this episode of reconcilable differences is brought to you in part by fracture you can learn more about fracture right now by going to fractureme.com right there on the internet Oh, you guys know Fracture. Fracture is the company that can take your favorite images and print them directly onto glass for you to display in your home, and they make the perfect, thoughtful gift. Fractures are handmade in Gainesville, Florida, from U.S.-sourced materials, and their sleek, frameless design goes with any decor. Ordering is super simple, and Fracture comes ready to display right out of the box. It even comes with that little wall hanger dingus. That's how fuss-free the Fracture experience is. And Fracture is a green company operating a carbon-neutral factory, which they lovingly refer to as their Fractory. I'm a big fan of Fracture. I have Fractures of my daughter at my house that are just beautiful. Uh, I recently sent some Fractures to some co-hosts on a podcast, and they were delighted to open it up and see the two of hearts staring them in the eyes. They could be freaked out just like me. Uh, You can go into Fracture right now. You know what you do? You go into your phone and look for some of those images that you love, some of those images you've given the heart to. Why don't you consider having that printed onto glass for someone in your life? Fracture prints are a great addition to any home. They make fantastic gifts for your friends and family. It is time to rescue those photos that are hidden away on your devices. So please go head over right now to FractureMe.com to get started and see how sleek Fractures look. And when you use the very special offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, you'll get 15% off your first order. You go to FractureMe.com. And please, don't forget to pick Reconcilable Differences in their one-question survey, as it really helps support the show. Our thanks to Fracture for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. John, uh, talk to me about the Oscars. You've added a, a main topic in here about the Oscars and industry awards in general, and I, my interest has peaked. Oh, I, I usually watch the Oscars. Do you usually watch them? Yeah, I watch most of them. I, watch, I only watched the Tonys when Hamilton was up, but I watch definitely the Oscars, definitely the Emmys, and sometimes the Golden Globes. Golden hmm. Globes used to be the one where everybody got drunk, right? See, I've never watched any of those shows that you mentioned, any of those other award shows. The Oscars was my only one. And, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to watch the Tonys or anything because I'm not into yeah. you know, theater and stuff. Uh, Grammys? Like, I'm not, I've never followed music closely enough. I've only just been obsessively into a few It just reminds me how completely out of touch I am with what everybody else is listening to. I just looked at the charts on Spotify yesterday, and I, I felt like I was 108 years old. I don't know, I don't know what Lil Pump is. <laughs> Emmys, uh, I think there's just too much TV. I've never felt like I, you know, it's just too. It just didn't feel as important. But I'm really into movies. I watch a lot of movies, mm-hmm. and Oscars seemed like like the domain is narrow enough. Like there's not there's not a million different awards 
there seemed like a small number, at least the televised ones. You'd, you'd have, you know, picture director, cinematography, sound effects and editing, stuff like that. Then you would actor, supporting actor, actor, supporting actor. Like, it seemed like a manageable set of things as opposed to like the million Grammys or like, I don't even know what the Emmys are for. Like, it just, just seemed like too much. And it's a thing that I'm interested in. Is, so, it, pure, is it purely because of your interest in movies? I don't want to spoil the, the where we're going, but I is it is it just purely because you like movies? Or don't you see it as a little bit of a Rorschach test or a little bit of a projection of other stuff too though well i mean so because I, like, I feel like it I, always has been because it's so much depends on which movies i've seen which ones i haven't and how i feel about all of these personalities where it just becomes like this passion play about preferences in life well i would say like this is the reason i watch the oscars at all is because i have an interest in movies and because i feel like it's tractable like there's not so much going on there's going to be a few major things and i can get my i, I get my head around it and it to the point and also I have some amount of, I don't know if you call it respect, but like I, I buy into the same things that everyone else buys into, including a lot of the people who get the awards at the Oscars is that the Oscars mean something. Maybe they don't mean what we think they're supposed to mean, but that they mean something that you are being recognized by your peers for something. Is it, does it mean you really were the best movie that year? Very often not. Right. Mm-hmm. But it means well, especially that there is especially the cases where the people who should have won five, ten, twenty years ago get their like consolation yeah, Oscar, uh, like the Deacons this year, right? Um, right, or, or definitely like Martin Scorsese and people like that. Yeah, yeah, but but, where, but like, even people, in like, the people like Scorsese where... lost so horribly to not as good movies for like what we now regard as classic movies and lost Dance to, like, with Wolves are crying out loud, Dance yes. with Wolves. Yes. Right. And so, and here's, but but even that, that's a, well, didn't it? Didn't they get beaten by uh, ordinary people one time? Yeah, a lot, a lot of bad things happened at the Oscars. Um, but but even in those cases, I'm going to take Dances with Wolves as an example, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, it doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe this is not the the best achievement, to, you know, because they're just people and they pick based on whims and fads and personal relationships and prejudices and all the other things, right? But even the even the one that wasn't supposed to win, Dances with Wolves was a good movie, right? Like I don't see the Oscar going to like Kangaroo Jack for best. No, picture. It was an above average movie, yeah. Right, Kangaroo Jack is not getting best picture, right? Like that that there that it means something in that if this wasn't the best movie this year, it was a movie with something interesting about it, something that grabbed people. Even Shakespeare in Love, like pick your your least favorite best picture winner or whatever, like that there was something to it, even if the something is only like for you know an actor category that this is the the it actor of the moment. Right. And they actually didn't give that good of a performance. And actually, they're not even that good of an actor. But yeah. this is the it moment for them. Knowing that it's the it moment for them is a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what draws me to the Oscars to the point where very often I will let the Oscars determine for me based on what they nominate, what movies I will watch towards the end of a year or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Say, because these are Oscar nominees or because this is like a, a favorite or in the, in the contender for to win this category that was nominated for. Maybe I should take a second look at that movie that I had previously dismissed as probably just being garbage because there must be something about that movie that's making it be in the conversation. It doesn't mean I'm going to like the movie, but, you know, I'm always looking for new and interesting movies. And I found a lot of new and interesting movies that way that I otherwise wouldn't have watched because they looked formulaic or the the premise didn't appeal to me or I, I couldn't possibly see how they could pull that off and have it be good. Um, I mean, like even A Shape of Water is an example, right? Um, oh, yeah, that's going to come up a lot. It seemed, you know, <laughs> it seemed like, I mean, I, it seemed fine, but I'm not really into that kind of movie. But the fact that it got Oscar nominated, I'm like, well, maybe it's this exciting. is actually, 
a really good implementation of this kind of movie. And I watched it before the Oscars, and I thought, yeah, this actually was. And, and uh, you know, above, I'm glad I watched it. It was above mm-hmm. average implementation of this kind of thing. Wasn't she delightful? Yes. Yeah. The whole movie was, you know, just her, well her, move, her movement was, was like just such a joy to watch. She, she brought so much to that role. Everything about it was, you know, it was well executed, right? Well, especially and for that's the budget. The I mean, the budget on that was not like surpassingly high. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, and, and I look at that and I said, like, well, look, Pan's Labyrinth was a better movie. And mm-hmm. I don't see how this could have won in Pan Labyrinth. But that's just, this is the way people are. I'm, I'm looking over the best picture winners historically. And like almost every year, there's like a head slapper. It's, it's incredible. I don't think anything will ever, from my personal opinion, will ever beat Goodfellas losing to, to Dance of Wolves. And the thing is, I really liked Dance of Wolves when I saw it at that age. Like, I saw it in the theater, and I oh, thought, raging, boy, raging this bull, is a, Raging this Bull is a, loses to ordinary people. Yeah, they, that's, the, that's the killer. That would probably be, if I was, you know, 10 or 20 years older, that would be the one that, that sticks in my craw. But, like, Dance of Wolves kills me because I love Dance of Wolves so much. But goodfellas was so transcendent that it was like mm-hmm. okay dances was, was fine and all but you know come on give me a break and now finally he's going to get his award and this movie is great and mm-hmm. and then dances wolf gets it because <laughs> you know 20 know, 28 years ago <laughs> something like that i don't want to think about it 1990, <laughs> oh. 1990 yeah yeah but like in the grand scheme like they they do the apology word so to get the apology word thing like where someone that everyone acknowledges is great it's kind of as if Meryl Streep had been nominated 14 times, but never, never get like Roger Deakins, right? Right, right, right. Everyone acknowledges that they're great, but every year there's some it movie or some fad or some trend or Su- some, Susan you know. Lucci mm-hmm, for the daytime Emmys. Well, I don't know if she, whether she deserved that or not, because <laughs> daytime Emmys, I don't Yeah, she was certainly was popular, but, but yeah, like the greats of the industry, um, sometimes they get nominated and gets award, get awards a normal amount of times, but other times they just get unlucky and. It's got to be the right. Reason, it's got to be the right year, and it's got to be an Oscar-ish film. That's that's the thing. Is like the real head slapper in some ways is how I'm just sitting here scrolling through these. How many of these, by and large, were like just Oscar bait kind of movies? Yeah, or, or just but not, like but the, not consequential know, in a way that we go back and like I don't know. Say what you will about Taxi Driver. I I I think it's still quite good, and like for the time, like just so many of his movies are just so epic. And like, there's such a feeling to that movie. I mean, it's, and but like, Jesus, that year was Rocky one over all the president's men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, it's easy to say that Rocky shouldn't have gotten that one, but Rocky was Rocky was a really good movie, and I I mean, but it was a very Oscar-y movie. Uh, I don't know what what has defined Oscar has changed, but the thing is, there's been an an Oscar-y movie is B, a movie that's about filmmaking and storytelling, or A, um, the kind of uh, exultant, how do you describe an Oscar-y movie? It's that, it's got to have, it's got to be the kind of movie that Hollywood is excited about putting out as like why it's good. Yeah, well, the, the, in recent years, it has been, uh, they love meta things, or they always, any movie but that glorifies movies. Storytelling, storytelling in movies, like that's, yeah. that's an easy win in a lot of and, ways. And being inspirational is also a real help if you're inspirational in some way. If you make people feel good about themselves for, you right, know, or like, if you or make like people for a lot of the actor and actress stuff, it's become such a, it's, it was a running joke in the 90s on Mr. Show, but like a kind of what they would call, maybe call stretch role, but some mm-hmm. kind of like you had lots of makeup or you had to gain 200 pounds or, you know. Had to make Charlize Theron really un- unpleasant. Yeah. But there are also new technologies, new thought technologies that come out, like Miramax's uh, campaign to get Shakespeare in love. It's, it's Oscar. Like the, the finding out that you can lobby the, oh, yeah. the Academy 
in just the right way. I bet it's a little bit like trying to win, like tonight we're watching the results come in from a Pennsylvania special election, knowing which district to focus your efforts on yeah. because there's so much bigger payoff. Like, well, that's no, I'm certainly knowing which people to on the side kind of lobby for which, which magazines to buy the full page ads in, like knowing the kind of like laser targeting that would, you know, allow you to get the old people who vote for these. And the gerrymandering, like the recent efforts to say uh, part of the reason certain movies are never going to win is because of the makeup of the Academy. So let's shake up the makeup of the Academy. Like yeah. it was previously gerrymandered to be a bunch of old white people. And now maybe let's change I mean, but that makeup. But it's, it's worse than your college. It's just all tenured professors who mm-hmm. are adamant about the fact that they're tenured and don't need to. Yeah. The age of the Internet is now, you know, leaking out people's information like that person who was uh, who was angry about people having any kind of racial interpretation of Black Panther. And they were like, angry angry indignant about the academy it. member who said he didn't even bother to watch get out because it wasn't an oscar worthy movie oh yeah, maybe it was get out and not black panther like yeah for people people watching get out and trying to map all these racial things onto it i don't know what they're on about this is an academy member saying this it's like it, may, it really shakes your faith the, the people you don't, you don't are, even have to be some kind of like you know uh beta sjw to look at that and go that's really retrograde that's but it's not just that it's just like do you understand how movies work at all at any level? Like, like it's kind of like one of those people, like the students in high school, which you can be forgiven because they're students in high school or middle school, where mm-hmm. you read a book and they they rail against the idea that the word that everything isn't shouldn't be taken at face value. That there even is a subtext like symbolism. It's just a story, man. None of these things mean anything. The Scarlet Letter. It's, like, it's just, just a, a letter. It's just it's a whale, not, man. <laughs> yeah, it's just a whale. Like, why do you have to read all this stuff into it? And it's kind of like anger at, at being made to feel stupid that, like, you read the story and didn't realize that there was a deeper meaning. Or it just seems like voodoo where it's like, you're going to test me on this stuff that you're just making up about what you think this thing means. It's just a story, right? When an Academy voter, you know, presents themselves like that, I'm like, are you are you a middle school student? Yeah, uh, like, you're just an angry middle school student mad that on the test they're going to ask you what uh, some obvious symbols in a book are, and you're going to be like, symbolism doesn't exist. It's just a construct made to make me fail tests. I think I think when the your canonical miss, middle schooler says that, at least for myself, when I would say things like that, it's because I thought you were trying. I thought you as the teacher were artificially trying to gin up the importance something the importance of something really boring. In the same way that your teachers say, "Hey, you better really learn this geometry because you're going to use it in life," and you would just go on the face of it like that doesn't make any sense. And so, like you know having to read Romeo and Juliet when I was 14 and watch the um, Franco Zeffirelli movie, I was just rolling my eyes so hard. I was like, these are not teenagers. This is ridiculous. It just, it seemed like this is the same. I I really felt like they were trying to, uh, I don't know, like trying to like gavage some kind of busted ass old culture down our throats. And like the date, there's no way this teacher really liked this or thought that this was good and important that it really felt like, a, like you were being gaslit. Yeah. Or at least that, I think that is even a more defense. That's a more defensible position than, uh, adamantly insisting that, that, that it's a, cons- I saw, that I saw a the cover. I saw the cover had a black. <laughs> yeah. Or, like that, that it's, that it's, uh, that it's totally a fabrication that like, this doesn't exist. You are putting that there. And at least you think there's a purpose behind it. Like, Oh, you're trying to make me think a boring thing is good, mm-hmm. but you might still believe that, uh, this stuff is in there. Uh, it's just that it doesn't make it good, but to, to, to come away from get out and rail against people who have any kind of, uh, a racial angle on the interpretation of that movie is just, shows such profound ignorance that you don't want to believe people like that are the ones who are determining as a group 
what gets an Oscar, especially if, like me, you hold some illusions that Oscars at least point towards a movie that was that is interesting in some important way. Or important in some interesting way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, and know, I, I, again, I, I, that's one reason I say, like, it's funny how by the time, and I, I listen to way more podcasts than you, I'm sure. I pay more attention to some popular culture things than you. But by the time we got past the Golden Globes, and to the Oscars, for example, I had very strong feelings about Three Billboards. Like, I had incredibly complex feelings about Three Billboards, where, like, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I mean, like, these actors are so good, but this story is so weird and problematic. Uh, but I should probably mention I haven't seen the movie. But I, like the rest of America, had really strong feelings. And then you're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, but Frances McDormand's speech, both her speeches were actually really, really good and, like, event-defining um, like evening defining events, right? So, and in, in the same way that you might pull for Call Me By Your Name, which everybody liked so much more than I did. <laughs> I understand why you're pulling for that movie. I understand why you're pulling for Lady Bird. And, you know, I'm not even saying that you, I'm not denying that people like that movie, but like I was pulling for Lady Bird. I thought Lady Bird was a really above average indie movie. I didn't think it was fantastic, but I was sure pulling for it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, like it, I'm thinking of uh, our friend Todd and his Predictinator, like mm-hmm. the other the other it's, metagame it's for, in terms that's of for like, VFX, right? Yeah, for like who are you pulling for versus who do you think should win versus who do you think will win? And yeah. the will win thing is where you start getting to the metagaming of like now the Oscars is like uh, you know a thing that I'm trying to understand how this this weird machine works, right? And that, yes, some, sometimes I find myself in that position. That's part of the fun of watching the Oscars is, and very often. I don't have any background. Like maybe I've only seen half of the nominees and some of the actors I don't even know. Like I'm not not up on all the movies, but during the course of watching the Oscars, because of the order they do the uh, the awards in, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. they do like the less important ones, saving the big ones towards the end. Right, right. It's like sh- should I use my big speech now? Like you know Jordan Peele thinking like should I do my my little writer speech now or should I let, mm-hmm. pull it all out because I might not win? I probably won't win Best Picture. But but as a viewer trying to play the prediction game. Very quickly, by the first couple of awards, I yes. can I will seed the engine to say, looks like it might be a big year for Shakespeare in Love, right? And so yeah. you play the game like, and the winner is, and before they announce who the winner is, you have to yell out in the room who you, who your prediction is. This is your last moment to put in your prediction, right? Do you do, do you do you fill out the form? I don't fill out the form most of the time. I'm, but I mostly do it in the moment. We we did it this year, and my wife cleaned my clock because she voted party line on everything that she thought would win because Oscar, and I voted everything that I wanted to win because who I was pulling for. Yeah, and you're, she, playing, you're playing the wrong game. She basically got double the number, over double the number that I got. Yeah. So the game, the game when you're watching is to say who's going to win. Sometimes you will derisively say that you think it's going to be, oh, it's this one again or whatever. And that's, that's, that's a, a fun metagame. The but king's it, speech. <laughs> but, but part, part of it is in terms of who you're pulling for, sometimes you'll just be amazed that a movie is nominated in a category and you'll start to like believe like maybe, maybe it could, it could happen. Like no one, th- it could be the dark horse, right? Everyone thinks, oh, it's great that it got nominated, but really this other movie's going to win, but you never know. Um, I mean, I'm looking at 1989. Mm-hmm. I probably would not have called by the end of the show. By the end of the '89 Oscars, I probably would have called this Field of Dreams. You would have said Field of Dreams. Uh, because by the end of the show, you kind of see what the mood is. That's what you're getting. You're getting back mm-hmm. in time the mood of the thing. But this was uh, Driving Miss Daisy, Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. Right, and Dead Poet Society and Born on the Fourth of July, and even My Left Foot are very Oscary. 
those are all very Oscar-y, inspiring, important. You got the stretch with uh, Tom Cruise and in, in Born on the Fourth of July, right? Yeah, and and uh, My Left Foot. Yeah, and Field of Dreams is a feel-good for, Forrest Gump kind of winner. Maybe maybe that's the one you think mm-hmm. of, but that's too you know it's too fun to be the winner. And Driving Miss Daisy, but Driving Miss Daisy, it's like that's that comes out of I don't know if that's like kind of making making white people feel better about racism kind of movie yeah he knows what he needs to make water Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that uh like it snuck in under that like again movies that make people feel console us about where we are how where we yeah or make you like the movie makes you feel an emotion right and then the movie makes you feel like a better person for having that emotion that it just made you have right yeah it might make you feel uh empathetic it might make you feel smart it might make you feel like a like a like a smart like a tastemaker like there's all kinds of reasons but often it's just because like you go like oh like forrest gump that was such a sweet movie yeah or driving miss daisy it's like i i sympathize with all the right people in this and the movie tells me i'm a good person for sympathizing with all the right people for this Mm -hmm. and there's nothing problematic (laughs) about this movie or my opinions of it and like but if i had to pick this without that context without knowing I, i would say you know there's just dead poet society born in the first time so oscary and my left foot in an artier year would yeah. would have been the winner. I would never have picked Driving Miss Daisy. And so there there are sometimes. So say you were pulling for Driving Miss Daisy because it was a movie that you really liked and you didn't think it would win. That would be an exciting gear for you. The, sure, the fact sure, sure. That that came out. And so I have a little bit of that excitement as well. Um, and there's some categories I care about more than others. Like I kind of it's kind of annoys me that animated it is in its little uh, separate category mm-hmm. rather than contending with the with the rest of the movies. It's a, it's I kind a, of like at a kids table. Yeah, I mean, if, if, what did they have? Beauty and the Beast that year, they didn't do that, was nominated up with the other ones, but you knew it wasn't going to win. And so now it's back in its uh, separate category. By the way, the year Beauty and the Beast was was nominated for Best Picture, Sons of the Lambs won. So a little bit different uh, movie that. there. Um, look at that Look at that crazy year, though. Wow, JFK, Prince of Tides. Wow, wow, wow. JFK should not be on that list. Prince of Tides should probably Someone, not look, be on look, that 90, list. 92 might be even weirder. Because I think of it also in terms of like, what kind of movie do like I remember really loving? What kind of movie do like? What movies do I still watch? Um, Crying Game, Unforgiven, Few Good Men, Howard's End, Scent of a Woman. Scent of a Woman should not be on that. Like I, you understand why they're there? Well, you but know like, why? Because that's his. That that that's because that it's a, Pacino. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a apology Oscar. I keep calling it like Apple's apology mouse, but it's like the it's a lifetime achievement Oscar without without being that in name. Boy, look at ninety four though. Forrest Gump wins over four weddings and a funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it was a nice competition that year between Forrest Gump and Shawshank to be the most Oscary like inspirational. You Shawshank on was IMDb also for like ten years. Shawshank was always like the highest rated movie on IMDb. Yeah, because there was nothing to dislike about it, and it was a good movie, and so it just and like you agreed it, with it, the good people, and <laughs> it's sort of driving Miss Daisy again. Yeah, Apollo although Shawshank is a little bit more of an edge than, than driving Miss oh, Daisy. Oh, absolutely, I think, absolutely. I think stands up better, but you know, inspirational movies like it depends on the year. Some years people are in the mood for a Pulp Fiction, right? In the mm-hmm. year where Shawshank and Forrest Gump were out, people were not in the mood for a Pulp Fiction, despite the fact that it is probably a better and more important movie than both of those. You think? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that like, movie that movie was a game changer i'd never seen anything like it i walked out of that theater with my eyes agog maybe you could say that shawshank is actually a better movie mm-hmm. but uh but pulp fiction is more important pulp fiction sure. went there yeah uh because shawshank is a is a is a simple tale told extremely well like there's no it's like no mistakes right it does 
It does what it's supposed to do. It does it very well. Hits its, hits its marks, you know. Right. But it's doing a thing that is not a new thing, right? And so Pulp Fiction was like, what in the world is this? And so, it, you know, and it also did it pretty darn well, too. Um, yeah, so I, I enjoy that aspect. And I, I was in the animated category. I enjoy rooting for my favorite animated movies. I enjoy, you know, anytime animation gets any kind of prominence in pop culture, mm-hmm. right? Because so often it is overlooked or derided and now at least it gets to be on the big stage yeah um i remember being excited when you know the, the pixar movies were in the game there because i was so excited about computer animation i mean spirited away did pretty well didn't it i mean i remember spirited away being the first movie i knew of as a miyazaki movie that you just kept hearing about everywhere i continue to think that academy voters have no idea what the heck to make of me that is we we watch that probably once a month and every time i just think to myself this is a very very, very strange movie. I've seen it many times, and I, I'm still struck by what an incredibly odd movie it is. But I, I like. I don't think. I don't think you know. The U.S. in general understands or appreciates uh, Studio Ghibli movies uh, in the same way that the the fans of of that do. Like, I never expect it to win against anything. And like Pixar is sort of the, you know. Animated movies that are good movies in the way that Academy voters want movies to be good movies. So they, you know, I'm excited when they win, uh, but they're, it's like they are playing, they're playing the same game. Whereas Studio Ghibli is not playing that game at all. So I just see it there and I have no hope that, you know, anything is nominated. It's nice. It's whatever. But it's like, it's almost as if uh, Studio Ghibli and anime in general serves as the inspirational input into the system that then produces movies that can then win Oscars. So like everyone at Pixar, the original Pixar crew, you know, is a reverent to to Miyazaki and cites it as an important influence along with a bunch of other stuff. All of their influences could never win an Oscar, but the things that they make being influenced by them can make Oscars, which is kind of a shame uh, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you know, I think it's just a cultural divide Um, and the animation bias that's mixed in there. Do you think people take this any way you want? Do you think people put too much time, attention, effort, emotion into awards shows in general and Oscars in particular? Awards show in general, probably just because there are a lot of them. And if you just add them all up, it just, you know, it's a little bit self-congratulatory in general. And I mean, maybe it's my bias towards movies, but like, especially when you get down to like TV stuff, there's just too many TV shows. Like, how are you mm-hmm. even going to measure? I know people want recognition for the great work they're doing on TV, but it just seems it just seems like too much. Um, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Like too much variety, too much variation. Movies seem more uniform than than TV shows. I mean, and it's not fair because, you know, some of the my favorite things I've seen in the past decade or so have been TV shows. So they should get some kind of recognition, but it just it just becomes but overwhelming. The reason I I. I... I, I, I keep thinking about this and bringing this up. This is I'm far from the first person to bring this up, but the Oscars are uh, very mainstream in many ways. I mean, it's an industry event about a fairly successful you know industry, and like like you and me and a lot of Americans, like people tune in because like they're familiar with it. There's pageantry. It's you know it's um it, but it is the mainstream. I feel like seeing whatever it is you like whatever it is, and not just movies. I mean, just like even cultural movements or causes or however you want to think about it. Like everybody has their own crystal for viewing this. And I think that's kind of what makes it interesting and maybe a little silly. Well, not silly to everybody. Everybody's got their own feelings about what matters. But I just feel like, you know, 
we're pulling for that. Like right now I have two tabs open. I have the Academy Award for Best Picture tab and I have uh, Max's political list where I'm trying to watch what's happening in Pennsylvania right now. I don't personally have much stake like tonight about who wins that election in Pennsylvania. It's apparently very, very thin. Uh, By the time this comes out, we'll know what happened, I assume, with that election. But like I do have a symbolic guy that I'm pulling for for a variety of reasons. Uh, Connor Lamb as a candidate and as a, uh, as a, as a, he seems like a good guy, but he's far from my ideal candidate, uh, for office, but I sure want him to beat that other guy because why? Cause it's heavily symbolic about this stuff that does matter hugely to me. So even though it is kind of small potatoes in a lot of ways, it is that little bit of a canary in a coal mine kind of thing where like, it, I realize how silly it is that I'm this fretful about this. And I spent all day like following these results and the predictions and all this stuff. And I know how crazy that is, but you know, it's not, so dissimilar from the way that people monitor the Oscars because it means a lot to you that like, you know, the, like the, a woman is being nominated as a cinematographer. Like we're, you know, how crazy is it? As several people have pointed out how that people could be pretty miffed that Guillermo uh, del Toro, you know, wins for shape of water that like, because there's so many other people you wished one, right? Like you really hope that like um, Jordan Peele or you hope that uh, who, who did Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, like we have our own reasons for saying like, God, it'd be so great if Greta Gerwig's movie won Best Picture because this is the mainstream. And that represents a step into this club for somebody you're really pulling for. So like, I'm, I am really, I'm really pulling for those folks. But on the other hand, Guillermo del Toro is a really, really talented, creative Mexican-American comic book nerd who's, by every single account, an incredibly accessible and very nice and good human being whose entire career is based on finding enough money to tell the interesting fantasy stories that he wants to tell. So in some ways, it's, it's kind of exciting that, that people could, could be miffed that he won because it, it sure is better than some other people who could have won. But then you see, you see what I mean, though? Like, we're, we're playing out this kind of passion play because this is so important to see our person. It's like in the Olympics where you got the shorter stand for number three, the taller stand for number two, and the biggest stand. Like, if you're a person that you're pulling for whose representation and some symbolism is important to you, if they get to stand atop that number one while the national anthem plays, like you're going to be so excited because now you are in the corridors of power. You have been represented, even if it is by this, this bunch of mostly old white guys, you know, don't you see on some level though, how that could be really important to people. Yeah. But I think you uh, hit on it before by saying the Oscars are mainstream. Like it's a trailing indicator, right? And if it's the most trailing indicator, like it's the caboose on this train. Like finally, when it's, it's all this stuff already, happens, it's something that's already happened. It's like it's it's recognition. It's long overdue recognition, right? That's what it is. It's not like oh, this is, there might be some up and coming filmmaker. It's like by the time uh, an unexpected uh, underrepresented person gets recognized, it is long overdue, right? And and even then, there's still you know, I mean, you could say it's it's a it's a, a leading indicator uh, for uh, demographic transformation in the people who make movies. But by the time anyone gets this kind of recognition, it's like it's it should have happened such a long time ago. And so it is I feel like it is like the capstone of an effort mm-hmm. to, you know, to break into the business. Right. To the, the first, you know, black actor to, to get an Oscar or a director or whatever. Like and that's this is this is the recognition to say you have achieved that step. Now, what's the next step? Right. Hmm. Um, or for different kinds of movies. You know, if if we if they had gone forward with animated not being in a separate category, for example, and just year after year. Every once in a while, there was an animated picture nominated for Best Picture, but they just never won. Mm-hmm. After a couple of decades of that, 
when the first animated picture actually won, it would be like, finally, because three of those past movies were better than all the other ones, but finally it gets the recognition it deserves. Right, right, right. right. And it's almost kind of like the, the apology Oscars where it's, you know, through through bad luck or whatever, it just becomes obvious that, you know, Roger Deakins nominated 14 times. Like, <laughs> he's, some of so those many, 14, he's done some of those so many 14 good times. He was probably the best one, and you kind of blew it, and you don't recognize it until you know decades later. Like part of the part of the reason you, you you don't know it, but part of the reason you love so many of his movies is because of him, and you you probably don't know his name. Yeah, and like and the thing is, like his job is so well defined, and he's so recognized as being great at his job. Like, okay, maybe you shouldn't have won all four of those, but you saying yeah. telling me not one of those? Like, oh, is it just so happened there was someone who had just an amazing well, year? Like anybody and their who thing does anything in his industry or like around his kind of job would just shake their head and go like, not again. Like, yeah, I can't I mean, believe Scorsese, he got passed Scorsese over. Scorsese was the same thing. I mean, I'm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so that that is, I think that uh, the frustration about that, like that every year that you're waiting for that capstone of like, you need to recognize this thing because it's been a thing that's happening and you've been failing to recognize it. So give it the recognition so we can go on to the next step. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, it's part of who you're rooting for. Sometimes, you know, like it, the question is, what are the Oscars supposed to be doing? Are they supposed to be picking the best movie? Or are they supposed to be picking the giving the Oscar to the person who recognizing that they shouldn't have lost fourteen times in a row? Should should that be what they're doing? Or should they be saying, Roger Deakins, you're actually the best? But it turns out the movie you made this year actually there's one that was made this year that was better. Yeah, yeah, they're humans. They do whatever they feel like doing. So I don't I don't know what you're supposed to do. But that's why we're getting mad about like Best Picture, mm-hmm. where we feel like especially in hindsight, but sometimes in the moment, you have not picked the best movie. But that's like I don't even know if that's their. If what's they're being called upon to do, are they being told, please pick the best movie? Or are you just being told, pick the one that you think you want to give an award to? Well, I think one way to spin it, it seems obvious, but I think anybody would say like, you know, best picture. Well, was this the best, was this the best movie? I think especially with, in terms of like the names that you associate with something, there's a metric almost any of us would apply either positively or negatively, which was, did that person deserve that award? And to me, that gets more interesting because it depends on what you mean by deserve, Right. So one person could say that Anna Paquin deserved that because she was so young in that role. Somebody else might say Martin Scorsese deserved that because, like, this is the second or third time that he's been passed over. Right. He, she should have won for Wolf of Wall Street because even though it wasn't, you know, probably the best movie that year, he would, he deserved to get it at that point. And it just depends on what you mean by deserve in that case. God, I'm looking at the end of the 90s here and it was not a good run for picking the, what I think is the right movie uh, in the moment or in hindsight. Uh, 96, <laughs> English Patient, won over uh, Shine, Secret and Lies, Jerry Maguire, and Fargo. Fargo. Fargo's and a Fargo, very, very good movie. <laughs> Fargo is better than the English Patient. Like, the other ones maybe you can have an argument for. There are some bad years, like how often, how often do you pull out your VHS of Jerry Maguire and pop it in? Like, he, uh, we know a catchphrase from that. Jerry Maguire was a good movie. Like, it was I, fine, I, yeah. I think it was be- I think it was the the third the second best movie that year. It had a lot going for it in the sense that it had different vectors to likability. It had Tom Cruise before we thought he was crazy. It had a very spirited performance in Memory Stories by Cuba Gooding Jr. I, th- I think it- I think he won for that, didn't he? I think he did like a big jumping around thing. You yep. got uh, Renee Zellweger. It had a little kid in it, mm-hmm. which they managed to not make annoying, which is amazing well, feat. Yeah. Good Will right. Hunting. LA Confidential was a very good movie. Look, look at 99, though. No. This is a year where I would be like, uh, what, what are they doing? No decision? No, 99, no award? Yeah. Um, I was. Well, I think obviously here we're looking at the best picture winner being American Beauty. I mean, it's, it's funny, though. Like, I, I feel like Avatar is special 
for an unintentional reason. Where like Avatar to me at this point almost stands on its own in terms of a movie that achieved so much financial success. It's well, at this point, it's a punchline. It's a cliche. Like, I mean, like my daughter likes Avatar. She's seen it twice, but like everybody forgets, you know, go and look. And I think it's, it's still, I think it's still the highest box office movie ever. Memory serves. I don't remember, but like Avatar, nobody thinks about Avatar. I heard there was going to be like an Avatar theme park, and I was there. Like, is. They made they made whole like Avatar Land, and you're like Disney, you got to be like I, you. I feel like it's almost like the um, the silence where like I only think about Avatar if I'm looking some looking at something in Papyrus that says Avatar. I never think about Avatar unless somebody says Avatar. Whereas I think about the Aviator three times a week. You think about Avatar every time you watch Dance with the Wolves because it's the same damn movie. Hmm. Interesting. But 99, though, like what I'm saying is yeah. none of okay, these so you movies got should have The winner was American Beauty. Right, which shouldn't have won. Cider House Rules, no. The Green Mile, no. The Insider, no. The Sixth Sense was super popular, but no. What's the Insider? Like, is that the I mean, smoking it, one? Uh, no, that was the... Uh, yeah, one? maybe. Maybe it was the... Uh, I was thinking of the Inside one. Band. Yeah, the Insider is the tobacco industry. Uh, was that Sarsgaard? No. Oh, Russell... Oh, uh, uh, Russell Crowe, who yeah, won the next year for Gladiator, I think. Um I mean, I guess if these were the best movies, I could probably force rank them, but none of them rise to the level where, I mean, a lot of people would say The Sixth Sense because it was a very popular movie, very well done. Yeah, you remember liking it. But I think it, I think it flattens with age. Uh, The Green Mile was a so-so adaptation of a so-so Stephen King story. Cider House Rules was a mess. The Insider was good, but. It was important. Not even. It was like a very late after the fact. it's an issue movie. Issue movies, I mean, like Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, like, when's the last time you watched Aaron Brockovich? It's such an old issue, though, and it was done okay. Yeah. And American Beauty was a little bit of a mess, too. So I feel like that year, I mean, put it this way. Like, that year doesn't have anything that stands out to me as an oscar winner, right? Mm-hmm. It could be argued that American Beauty is the artsy pick. And that people were an artsy move, but none of those movies feel Oscar. Like the Green Moth is Oscar, but it's not. American very well Beauty done. has not aged well. No, I mean for a variety of reasons. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people are angry about the Gladiator year because Traffic didn't win, but I would be mad about the Gladiator year because Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon didn't win. That was a, now that was a hell of a movie. Oh, Traffic, right? Brokeback Mountain, Capone, Slumdog Millionaire. Why? I had a funny experience. Um, where I, I did that thing that I do sometimes where I'd watched part of a movie and um, I, I had been wanting to save shape of water to watch uh, with my wife. Um, but I cheated and I watched like the first, probably the first 30, 40 minutes. It was up to the point where she had like, she was given eggs to the creature, but like, you know, and we'd seen the establishment of the relationship with the six feet under guy. And I was enchanted. I thought, oh my God, I love what this guy does with movies. I just, I love the way everything looks. I really think this looks the way he wanted it to look. And I like this hidden figures lady. Like I, I liked everything about it. And so I was really, and so she hadn't seen it yet. And then I was all excited for it. It was like, it was my, I was really pulling for it on my, on my ballot. And, you know, then the Oscars came and went. And then finally we sat down and watched it together. <laughs> and it was like, it was like Kramer watching the movie, like where he didn't watch it all the way through. And first he wants to have the living will. <laughs> and then he wants to get rid of the living will because he didn't watch to the end. The second two thirds of that movie, it's not as good as the first part. Like once it gets into what the movie's really about, it's, I mean, it's good. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's enchanting in its way. But um, I, I don't know. Did you see it? 
Yeah, no, I think I think it's all of a yeah, piece. You said, I don't, you said you did. Yeah. I don't break it into pieces. I think it, it tells exactly the story I thought it was going to tell, and it does so in a, in a reasonably charming way. I think I wanted more of the Amelie stuff. Wet Amelie, as some people call nah. it. Oh, she I'm, was so adorable when yeah, they do little but dance. I know, but I don't need. I don't need more of the Amelie. I, I knew what I was yeah. getting. I, I know what uh, you know what the horror movie is going to be like. I think this was like that. I knew. I felt like I knew every beat of this movie, and it, it was mostly really well executed. Yeah, uh, with good performances and and interesting. Uh, you know, it's shot in an interesting way. He always, you know, in in, in the way that he does. I, I thought it it had panache and style, and was just Very slightly stylish. off kilter. Again, mm-hmm. Pan's Labyrinth, I think, is a better movie. That's a hell of uh, but a movie. That's a, that's a rough movie. Yeah, so I forget I, in, until I watch it. I forget like how, ooh, how cringe-inducing parts of that movie are. Yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is definitely darker, and it appeals more to me personally. But I also think it is it is. It's got that Doug more, Jones more, guy. That guy's more amazing. sophisticated movie than. Uh, what about uh, Dunkirk? You like Dunkirk? Dunkirk is such a weird one for me. Um, I should have seen it in the theater. I think I, yeah, really I missed did. out not seeing uh, the theater. I saw, I saw it in the theater because I, I, I kind of knew that, that, you know, extracting maximum value from it. Um, if it's Christopher Nolan, you really might as well see it in the theater. Yeah. And it just, I'm not going to say it left me flat because it was kind of interesting and exciting. I, but think, it hit, I think it hit its marks. Yeah. But, but like my, my problem with it is that it just felt like it was keeping me at a distance. The whole movie felt like it was yeah. keeping me at a distance. It didn't, it didn't want me like, I, He's so, he's so clever. The, he's so clever about his his way. Okay, the establishing shot's going to be something important about the movie, and then there's going to be funny stuff with time and order. And the yeah. thing I want to give that points for is there's a scene. At the, I think I told, told you this already, but there's a scene at the end of that movie that like completely caught me off guard. I found myself a little teary, crying a little bit at the end of that movie in a way I never would have expected. So I give him points for that. Yeah, they wore he wore you down eventually. You no, know, like my like the the reason I think it's keeping me at a distance is because it's never. It never got me wrapped up enough into the individual people's individual stories. Characters. I felt I was yeah. felt it's like I mechanical. was looking. Yeah, I felt like I was looking from above through a tilt shift lens. Beautifully shot, that uh, you know, and very spare and not too much uh, exposition and you know the timeline overlapping and all that stuff. Like probably all looks good on paper, but in the end, it just it just didn't draw me in enough. I would never have given it uh, a best picture win fine to nominate and technically like very lots of admirable tech, technical aspects of it but mm-hmm. for just for example to compare it to interstellar he which knows is he a, knows what he's doing you yeah, know is a, interstellar is a much more uneven he's movie one of those guys like edgar wright where like i i think he really makes the movie that he wants to make yeah maybe although i like i i would be interesting to say like if you asked him which well this is hard, which movie you're more satisfied with he might be more satisfied with dunkirk because it is less uneven over, than interstellar over, over but what? interstellar uh, i feel like has higher highs Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but I really do admire its um, pretensions. Higher highs and lower lows. Uh, we're running very long, but I, I just need to know this from my own health, my own mental health. We, we probably shouldn't talk about Black Panther, should we? We're gonna we're gonna disagree on that, aren't we? I don't think so. not that mm-hmm. much. Like I, I think someone tweeted you to try to to try to scare you by showing you my letterbox D rating for Black mm-hmm. Panther. I don't know if it was thought- directed at me, but I was very sad. I felt like replying to both of you to say, you should look at some of my other Letterboxd uh, ratings to calibrate. Oh, you, you're, you're hard on the grades. Yeah, I'm not. I'm stingy on the stars. <laughs> you're stingy right? on so the fives? <laughs> you think fives? I'm sti- like, yes. I, go huh? Just go look at like movies you know that I love and look at what I rated them, right? Okay. I, I am very stingy on the stars. So oh, I'm so glad you're not my dad. I just, I don't know what I would do. I, I, I just feel like I want to use the whole rating range. I don't right. want to just spend my whole time between four and five and just deal with that half like a three-point rating system <laughs> four four and a half or five <laughs> that's me <laughs> no i have i have opinions and i use the i use the whole range 
Oh, you um, do really spread out. And I do, I do rate all my movies. Uh, so if you want to go through, through my thing, the letterbox that you can see what I, th- I, I, I go back and revise them sometimes when I, when I reconsider, so they're not fixed in stone. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, no black Panther, I definitely didn't like it as much as you did, but okay. I didn't dislike it. I okay. just thought it was, uh, kind of a, uh, mm-hmm. a okay. middle of the middle of the road, mm-hmm. Marvel mm-hmm. movie that had incredible okay. cultural import. Okay, good, good. Closing the bug. Yeah. Like I, I, there's, there's nothing, I haven't really heard a lot of people who like, well, some people are like, oh, this movie was a mess and I hate it, but they never had any specific complaints. Like, what specifically did you dislike? There's not. It's kind of like uh, Dunkirk in that way, although, it, you know, it, it didn't do anything wrong. I can't believe the hours and hours of abject crap that friends of mine choose to spend their time working on. The, the complete attention and time sinks that not even just video games, but the stuff that they put hours and hours and hours of time into. Like, like just very, very silly things. And then they find some way to nitpick that movie. It's just like, it's just, I mean, you can, you can nitpick it as much as you can nitpick any other Marvel movie, but, uh, you know, like, yeah, but I mean, it would, it would be like, I don't know. No, it's, it's like, it's like somebody who eats out of a garbage can six days a week. And then they have a meal that somebody spent like days putting together for them. And they're like, well, I don't know. If people weren't engaged by it, like if they didn't, if they didn't pull, I see this sometimes with the Thor movies, which I really like, but a lot of people just bounce off the Thor movies. Like, I think the first Thor movie is really, really good. Yeah. Like maybe it's, it's, it's like, especially the first one people complained it was too jokey before Guardians of the Galaxy showed them how to do jokey in a way that more people will accept. Right. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it just it felt a little bit off or whatever, but sometimes you just bounce off and I can see with uh you know i I get suspicious when people are angry about it that's when i get suspicious that there's something else going on but if people just watch black panther and say it was all right like most people will totally recognize the importance of the movie which again i think is separate from like okay but like just pretend yeah none of that exists you know what kind of a movie is but you can't really separate them like like they're they're so entwined and especially in black panther into the theme of the movie you i think the only thing you can have nitpicks with our execution on a few things here and there like or you know editing choosing what to cut and what to put in but like you know people complain about the rhinos and the battle scene and maybe the climax could have been more in keeping with the rest of the movie i didn't i didn't love the rhinos you know i like i, I think here's the thing that surprises me Just among all people i think there's widespread agreement that uh a highlight of the movie if not the highlight of the movie is like the uh the casino showdown and that whole action sequence because that's after you've been introduced to everybody and they've set things up yeah and it's, the it's first like an kind of james bond movie yeah, the first kind of tense coming together of everything, like that was a great, you know, that that was a great sequence, and everyone seems to love that. Like many Marvel movies, as it comes towards the end, at least no one came into or out of a portal in the sky. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mac, I mean, I do agree with Max in that sense of like, oh, here we go now. It's time for the CGI man fight. You know, you yeah, get that feeling and, of the go. Yeah, like and the people complaining. I had the same the same kind of issue uh, when the star of the movie, the titular Black Panther. <laughs> was slightly less charismatic than almost everyone else who was, who was co-starring with on the screen. Like almost like, a, it, it, and this is probably is an embarrassment of riches. Like this is, yeah. I think that's actually part of the cultural moment of the movie to realize. Do you see how many talented actors there are who you have not been giving roles in movies? There are so many of them that they're, this movie is bursting at the seams with them. Yeah, so much know, so, uh, Mich- Michonne's in that movie. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so much so that your lead, who would otherwise be a highlight is sometimes overshadowed by so many other great people in the movie. Like, by the quote-unquote like villain, of, by, like, three different women. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I thought he was really good, but, yeah, I, I take the point. All right, I'm not going to put that on the list. we got other stuff to talk about. Mm, stingy on the fives. 